Hey everybody, how y'all doing? I'm Michael. I'm here with Alex as always. Hello. And we're here with another episode of Falling Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines, the franchises that are contained within them, and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. And we're here with another really, really good episode, Alex. One that I um I've been looking forward to doing for for quite a while. But I have a question I gotta ask you first, as always. Okay. If you were going to be in a sci-fi series, and like what character archetype would you be? Would you be the cool bounty hunter? Would you be the would you be like a random person on the street that gets randomly blown up by a laser or somewhere in between? Mm. What would you be? I'm definitely thinking like independent ship captain freelancer kind of thing perhaps smuggler um kind of like uh would you have like kind of like a steely heart or whatnot that kind of grows on people after a while yeah something like that yeah a good jet black sort of situation yeah yeah all right yeah no i like that i like that me i would be I would be a bartender with a really bad gambling problem who mm. gambles on whatever the weird fake sci-fi gambling card game exists. Right. That's probably some variant of Blackjack. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Pazak or something like that. And, you know, constantly loses all, and like gets like the entire crew in trouble. But at the end of the day, everyone just shrugs their shoulders and goes, oh, man, <laughs> that's that's Mike the bartender. Look at that. He almost got us all killed, but everything's all right. That's fun. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So as you can probably t tell, we're going to be talking about a bit of a sci-fi series today, but I wanted to start this out kind of like last time by kind of going over a bit of a concept or telling you a bit of a story. So, Alex, I wanted to ask you another question, and that's, are you familiar with the idea known as the illusion of choice in video games? Yes. Um, that, as I understand it, that being that all paths basically lead to the same outcome, uh, but mm -hmm. you create enough sort of superficial differences between those paths that the player feels like they are impacting the story and the world to sort of reach that outcome. I think I just realized what we're talking about. I, I bet you probably have, but yes, that, that pretty much is what the illusion of choice is. Uh, it tends to refer to the idea that just as... Just to kind of reiterate, despite an abundance of choice in a particular game, uh, this is the more of the negative interpretation of it. Your decisions don't matter because the developers want you to go in a certain direction, usually for narrative purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a positive spin, there's a, like, a negative spin to this, really. Sure, sure. Uh, this is something that people became more acutely aware of, this particular idea of the illusion of choice in the 2000s and 2010s because games started to become way more cinematic and simply more heavily reliant on narrative elements mm -hmm. in a way that was like more reflective of movies and TV. However, this always ran counter to what makes video games special, or it seems to anyways. Uh, the idea that you're an act participant and can make a choice. Like, choice extends all the way back to the earliest days of video gaming, right? Mm -hmm. uh, do you take the warp pipe in Super Mario Brothers, or you just continue on the stage? Do you take the top path in, in a Sonic the Hedgehog level, or the bottom path? Like... Like, what party members do you use in Final Fantasy? Stuff like that. Choice is what makes games special, but that sometimes runs counter to narrative-focused games such as RPGs, because if you were able to make a true choice, it would make it wildly different as far as how the story plays out. So, now there's another reason for not offering true choice in these games, and I sort of already referred to this. 
with 3D assets needing to be generated, voice lines recorded and the like, and asset generation in general, if you were to give true choice in video games, it would add a ton to the cost of development of these games. So a hasty compromise is done. Limited choice is offered with the idea that at some point, all choices will lead to a singular point, either the midpoint or the end being the most common. So I found this handy dandy little like diamond like line graph, essentially. I, I don't know if you happen to see it on your mm, screen, but yeah. I'll definitely describe it for people at home. And I'll, I'll post a, a link to it in the show notes. Basically, you start out at a single point and you flare out in maybe like four or five directions. Maybe some of those will converge on a single point themselves. Maybe some others will split off to other choices. But the diamond gets bigger and bigger until you reach about the midpoint. Then it starts to come back towards the center a little bit. Then it splits back off. And it all comes back usually down to a single point near the end. Usually whatever the end game is, when you're going to be facing off against the big bad or not. Now this uh, particular diagram I'm showing is, is a little bit inaccurate because a lot of these games usually have two other branches that will branch off from that last point. Usually your good ending and your bad ending, right? Mm-hmm. So this allows, this is a compromise though. This compromise gives people some degree of control over how the narrative plays out while still allowing the developers to control the overall story and limit where you go. Along the way, people were usually allowed to make other minor choices that are permanent, but in such a way that you never have to deal with the consequences of those choices going forward, except maybe like a dialogue prompt or something. Uh, to give an example, it's like deciding if the Wookiees should, be, should stay enslaved on Kashyyyk in Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, these decisions appear to have a huge impact, like that, that should have huge implications, mm -hmm. but they really don't as the player will then move on, and these events are either lightly referenced or never referenced as the game goes on. Alex, were you ever like, particularly bothered by that, that concept or those decisions happening and not really seeming to have a big impact? Uh, it really depends on the game. So, for instance, hmm. Knights of the Old Republic? No. Uh, that never bothered me. I found the illusion of that game pretty solid the whole way through. And as you sort of alluded to, when this illusion works, it's really pretty positive. Like it yeah. really, you really do sort of buy into it and feel like, oh man, I'm having an impact on this world. I'm choosing how this goes. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like yeah. I should put a lot of asterisks next to talking about any David Cage game, but playing Heavy Rain, yeah, it felt... That was pretty solid, too, at least the first time through. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I agree with you on that. Some games are very good about keeping up that illusion. Usually it's games that have, like, sequels where it sort of falls apart because then you get to the sequel right. and developers mm. will have to make a choice, right? right? And sometimes that choice doesn't reflect what you did. Oh, boy, let's it's... talk about Infamous someday. Oh, God. One day we will, and I dread it. <laughs> <laughs> um... So yeah, there, there are definitely games where it didn't bother me. A lot of the Telltale games, I thought, did it pretty well. Uh, Wolf yeah. Among Us particularly jumps to mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Telltale games are honestly kind of a gold standard for doing that well, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. So regardless of how impactful, though, these dis narrative decisions and decision trees were, they were a popular mechanic in PC RPGs in the late 90s and early 2000s. Because as we alluded to, if the illusion is done well it does make it feel like you are making an impact. Yep. So companies such as Black Isle Studios, uh, putting out games like Planescape Torment and Icewind Dale were real masters of this. But it really only became very popular 
or at least from like the wider general sense, I would say, with the release of Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic for the PC and Xbox in 2003. Alex, uh, have you ever played Knights of the Old Republic? I did. I played it on the Xbox back when it came out. Nice. Me too. Me too. Excellent game. Very it good. Is, it is 1A to Paper Mario to Thousand Year Doors 1B as far as mm. my favorite RPGs of all time. Like At one point, I was literally playing this game every year. I would do a yeah. new playthrough. Yeah, that's fair. I would definitely say, as far as I can think of, it's definitely the best uh, third edition Dungeons and Dragons video game ever produced. Oh yeah, totally. It it almost got me into D anD. d Yeah, fair. And then I looked up the D anD. d like source books and rules, and then went, "I this is going to require a lot of time." It does. Yes, that's not <laughs> inaccurate. <laughs> not at all. Although it did get me to listen to a lot of a lot of D and D podcasts, oh yeah, which that's, was a lot of fun. That's a good alternative. Yeah. So, Knights of the Old Republic was developed by Bioware and published by LucasArts. Uh, it's kind of known as Coder for short, and it's a game set in the Star Wars universe that follows the story of an unnamed Jedi who tries to stop a Sith warlord from defeating the Republic and taking over the galaxy, all while learning the secret behind who he or she really is. Uh, this game was very successful. It sold around 3 million copies on the Xbox alone, which the Xbox wasn't a failure, but it wasn't a huge success. I think it had 26 million Xboxes were sold over its lifetime, somewhere mm. around that ballpark. It sounds right, yeah. Uh, but so still, 3 million copies out of that is, is quite impressive. And once again, that's just for the Xbox. Mm -hmm. That's not counting PC and Mac. And it, it helped introduce these concepts to a wider audience, which is the really important thing, through a well-told Star Wars story. There were plenty of decisions you could make along the way, such as which characters would live or die, outcomes for the different species, once again, such as the Wookiees, and corporations that were present in the game, such as like, oh, is this corporation going to end up having a real bad time or not? And of course, the ending itself. You know, does the dark side or the light side win? Now, Coder had another very important thing to it that is going to tie into this illusion of choice a little bit. It had an alignment system. Ah, uh, yes. Now, the yes. The alignment system was not pioneered by this game, but it was a very popular concept at this time. Once again, this is kind of just introducing us to a wider audience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, many decisions would affect an in-game alignment system that would determine if your character was in tune with either the light side or the dark side. Uh, you know, are you going to be good or evil, essentially? Uh, which usually was comically good and comically evil when it came to Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah, you took any much. sort of You took any sort of middle path that's like, you get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this in turn had gameplay ramifications. This has an unfortunate side effect, though, because by having gameplay ramifications tied to this moral alignment system, it meant that players were incentivized to min-max their characters for the greatest benefit it was detrimental to stay morally gray. Mm -hmm. In Knights of the Old Republic's case, it meant that force powers weren't as strong as they could be, and certain items were either limited to light-sided or dark-sided characters. Uh, in fact, if I remember correctly, if you went dark-sided, you were actually really hurting your character because you missed out on some really good lightsaber crystals that really right. increased your damage output. Right. You can see why this is a problem in a game that involves choice. It means you have to go strongly in one direction or another if you want the greatest gameplay benefit. 
Now, Knights of the Old Republic wasn't the only game to fall for this trap. Other games like Fable also had narrative decisions and alignment systems that would mm. lead to better gameplay benefits depending on what path you take. This, however, highlights a simple fact about the illusion of choice. Not only will the decisions made often lead you back to a single point, even smaller decisions have a right or wrong choice due to the gameplay implications therein. Yeah. Uh, there's a really fascinating paper that was on um, uh, Duke University's website that I found that actually talked about alignment systems and um, and skill trees in that hot banger, uh, Dante's Inferno. Oh, God, I forgot that had an alignment system. It did. And he, he talked about, like, well, if you go, like, along the light side of the path and pick all the holy skills, you're making that game impossibly tough for you because all the enemies at the end game are immune to that. Right. Which... I can sort of understand how that would be like a narrative theme for the game. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, it's it's difficult to maintain sainthood among the denizens of hell or whatever. Yeah. But also, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, especially since if, um, if I remember correctly, that's not readily apparent that that's a bad choice you're making. Yeah, probably not. Mm. I, I so, yeah. also... I should clarify before I say this. I really like Infamous. I really like the Infamous <laughs> games. And I generally They're... like Sucker Punch a lot. They are good games. They are legitimately good games. If you want to see a game that took all the wrong lessons from KOTOR, go play Infamous. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, Infamous is a very fun game to play. It's a very fun world. It just... The mechanics sometimes don't line up. Yeah, a little bit. There, there's oversights and also <laughs> just undersights. Yeah. Uh, just just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> hey, Cole, did you steal food so you and your friends could eat while random strangers go hungry? All right, that's like the same as electrocuting this train full of people for no reason. <laughs> Oh, man. Right. I love Infamous. Infamous has some real problems. <laughs> There's a reason nobody really remembers the story of Infamous. They yeah. just go, that's a cool open world. And you have cool lightning powers. Yeah. That's rad. And sometimes <laughs> the PS3 can even run what's happening. But only occasionally. Only occasionally. Very occasionally. Like many PlayStation 3 games at the time, yeah. only occasionally does it run. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this was an obvious problem, right? Mm -hmm. And companies such as Bioware took notice, albeit at first in half-step measures. And once again, we're yep. talking about like alignment systems. Uh, Bioware's next game, Jade Empire, an excellent game. Fantastic game. Love Jade Empire. Absolutely love it. They attempted to correct this problem somewhat by having the two sides of its alignment system instead be two sides of a philosophy rather than good and evil. Mm. So... They try to explain, it's like, no, neither side is actually good or evil. They're just, like, different sides of a coin. But um, right. if I describe these sides and what they, <laughs> um, what they stand for, I don't know. I'll let you make your own decision. Mm -hmm. The two sides were the open palm, which, is, which represents altruism and helping people, and the closed fist, which represents self-reliance and violent actions. You can see how this didn't work. Yeah. Somewhere around the choice of, hey, do you want to feed this little girl to the demon living inside of her? Like, that mm -hmm. gets kind of moral. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of decisions like that. It was like, 
hey, do you want to steal from this person? And it's like, not really. It's like, all right, well, cool, man. I guess you were, you must be an open palm kind of person. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I guess. Seems like I was just doing so, the right thing. Right. Seems like I was just not stealing. There's a difference between self-reliance and thievery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, people can be violent and still respect the law. This right. is a, this is a possible thing. <laughs> yeah. It, they don't necessarily align sometimes, but, you know. But yeah, so, this also didn't address the issue with these types of narrative. And that's the fact that you still, in Jane Empire, you still barrel towards a common ending, right? Mm-hmm. Bioware, however, felt they had a solution to that as well. In 2004, they began development on not just one title, but three games. All three would combine to tell an overarching, epic plot where decisions made in previous games would influence decisions in later installments in ways players could never expect. And if like, they could pull this off, theoretically, they, they would solve this narrative issue about your choices potentially not mattering. Yep. Sure would. Sure would. And this incredibly ambitious project would be released would release its first title in 2007 and is the subject of today's episode, Mass Effect. Alex? Yes. What's your experience with Mass Effect? Mass Effect 1 is one of my favorite games ever made. Me too. Mass Effect 2 is a pretty damn good sequel to one of my favorite games ever made. Agreed. With some oddness. Yes. Mass Effect 3 is a very good, very compelling train wreck of a conclusion that just trips on the last hundred meters and plants its (laughs) face into the dirt. Mass Effect 1 and 2 are games about going up a set of stairs, and Mass Effect 3 is about (laughs) tripping and falling down said stairs. Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> so yeah, our opinions, I think, line up for the most part. I think Mass Effect 2 is a utterly fantastic game, mostly because of its character interactions. Mm, yep, that's uh, fair. Even though I, I, I also feel like they do some really weird things with one character in that game that we'll eventually talk about. <laughs> but then, yeah, you get to Mass Effect 3, and I'm like, that multiplayer is great. It's pretty all right. It's a lot than I, I expected. Yeah, I, I think I put... $300 worth of loot boxes. Sure. That multiplayer. Sure. It was, it was my first experience with loot boxes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone's first experience with loot boxes goes bad. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, Mass Effect is a series that almost succeeds with what it sets out to do. It almost gets there. Very nearly. Very close. And in fact, if Mass Effect 3 had been an outright bad failure of a game, I think it would have been better. Yeah. Like, the fact that Mass Effect 3 gets, like, probably 85 to 90% of the way there. Yeah. Before it just trips on its own clown shoes back down the stairs. Oh. Like, I... I Go ahead. You're you're absolutely right. If you want to talk about the greatest highs and the lowest lows of the illusion of choice, the Mass Effect series is for you. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes oh, yes. it does it so well. And then you get to the parts where it doesn't. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to really see the illusion break in this first episode because we're really going right. to only be talking about the first game. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next episode, when we get to Mass Effect 2 and 3, oh, we most definitely will see it break. Yeah. Especially when we meet Serial Ninja. Oh, boy. Remember Serial Ninja? I try not to. Honestly, no. A lot of the time I don't. <laughs> I often forget that character is a thing in the game. <laughs> oh, man. It's good that it's good to reference things that we're not going to talk about for like three weeks. <laughs> oh. Kai Ling is a trick wreck. But... <laughs> But Mass Effect itself may be the most ambitious video game project ever. <laughs> that is a fair statement. I, I think it totally, totally is. It conceived as three games in total and set in a Star Trek-like universe, it had an innovative approach to how it dealt with choice in games. It was going to let your decisions carry over to subsequent games, and it didn't matter how big or small it was. That's the really important thing. A random side quest in Mass Effect could have implications in 2 or 3. And oftentimes it did. So this was obviously a big deal as other mainstream series didn't do that. Like going back to Knights of Old Republic, like Knights of Old Republic 2, mm -hmm. uh, other than the really big decisions involving Revan that you technically answered in essentially a questionnaire, <laughs> it didn't matter. Yeah. So, so if there were, once again, yeah, really big deal because it, if there were multiple endings, they would either pick one element, the developers would, would pick one element from each and use those as a baseline for the next. Mm -hmm. Mass Effect clearly wanted to have the player's choices matter, whether it was big or small, and for at least the transition from Mass Effect 1 to 2, it made a good effort to accomplish that. Once again, when we get the 3, it becomes a little bit more iffy. Yeah. And uh, I, I think there's going to be reasons for that that are very explainable. The other big change was to the morality or alignment system that's in the game. Similar to Jade Empire, Mass Effect had a two-sided morality system, which neither side necess necessarily corresponding to good and evil. And I think they do a better job at almost accomplishing what they're trying to set out to do here. Yeah. These two sides consist of Paragon, which is more of a by-the-books approach to a problem. Like, they follow mm -hmm. regulations. Like, they tend to, like, try to do right, but they're not necessarily doing the good thing. Right. Right. And Renegade, which represents a more violent seat-of-your-pants approach to a problem. Shoot right. first, ask questions later. Going uh, back to D&D, to the, the sort of two-axis alignment system, it shifts mm -hmm. from good and evil to something closer to lawful and chaotic. Yes, exactly. That would be the best way to describe this, is yeah, one's lawful, the other's chaotic. And they do allow you to make decisions... They don't really allow you to make a whole lot of Paragon decisions that are evil, but they mm -hmm. definitely do allow you to make renegade decisions that are good. Right. That is sort of the... What I think is kind of smart about is your, your character, Shepard in Mass Effect, is essentially good, whether mm -hmm. you're Paragon or renegade. And so that sort of lets them control the narrative more tightly because you're always going to do more or less the right thing. It's how you go about it that becomes interesting. That's very true. Yeah. Unlike Knights of the Old Republic, where you could literally basically torture people to death if you wanted to, that never really happens at Mass Effect. Right. So, yeah, like, that's a very good point to bring up. Yeah, Shepard tries to do the right thing almost always, whether it's a pragmatic approach or a chaotic approach is 
where the difference comes in. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because essentially one side is a good cop, the other side is a bad cop. Right. So in order to emphasize this, getting Paragon points doesn't take away Renegade points or vice versa. Like previous alignment systems, if you did an evil thing, it took away from the good meter, got you closer to center, and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, they're two separate meters that filled as you made decisions. This system, however, wasn't perfect because in order to access certain decisions, you needed to reach a certain threshold of points, right? Which, unless you use an exploit that's present in the first game, that's still in the uh, the uh, remakes, actually, by hmm. the way. The remasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was basically impossible. So you still had that sort of illusion of choice problem a little bit where if you every really big big decision you did not need to have like max renegade or max paragon points right but some of the smaller decisions you kind of had to right and so it did emphasize a little bit of min maxing yeah well and so that's sort of an interesting problem because it like the easy solution to that problem is just don't have your alignment affect quote-unquote gameplay at all Mm-hmm. But then the question becomes, well, do you want to do that? Do you want to make it strictly narrative or do you want to make it mechanical in some way? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And because there, there is a lot of fun in like, hey, let's build these meters. Let's make right. the number go up. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very, very difficult problem to solve. And I think they've came the closest they possibly could to solving it without, yeah, just eliminating the concept of alignment system in the first place, which... Granted, a lot of games nowadays basically have. Yeah. Like, this this is a particular concept has died out from, like, the mid-2010s on, mm-hmm. with, with some rare exceptions. So, yeah, it it's definitely something, like, where I do highlight that, they're, you know, hey, they don't quite get there all the way. I think they definitely do the best they can. Yeah, probably so. So, in order to bring all this together and make you actually care about this world, though, Bioware had to create a gaming world that would make the player's decisions feel like they matter. Because, like, with Star Wars, it's very easy to make decisions that feels like it matters. Like, everyone loves the Wookiees, right? Sure, so, like, of you, course. You, yeah, you, you care about what happens with them, theoretically. But, yeah, like, one would hope. Yeah, one, one would hope. One would hope. You know, when you're creating your own new game world, though, that's, there's a lot of work that needs to be put into it for you to actually care about what's going on there. Because you've never interacted with them before. Like, we've right. all grown up with Star Wars, right? Right. We haven't grown up with the Asari. Correct. That being said, Mass Effect may very well have one of the most well-realized universes straight out of the box. It's very good. It is very good. I am not going to sit here and say it's original in any sense. No, it is, no. It is 100% Star Trek. It, absolutely. It is straight-up secondhand Star Trek. But they put enough of their own spin on it and they put in the work. The important thing is they put in the work. Yeah. That it makes it actually matter. So to give a little bit of backstory on it, taking place in the year 2183, it tells the story of humanity's relatively late arrival to the galactic community, with various alien species having ac- had access to space travel for thousands of years compared to humanity's 35 years. Mass Effect had to establish complicated backstories for each of these races, the technology present, diplomatic relationships present, all while not overwhelming the player. This is an obviously difficult task, and if nothing else, it's the one part of the story that Bioware truly seems to deliver on wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. They accomplish this in multiple ways, organically through just playing the game, taking on a quest, 
and also giving the players an optional codex to go through hours of documents dealing with the most minute detail. I absolutely love how they did that. Yes. I, I loved going through that codex, all three of the games. Absolutely. And I have to especially give props to the way they balanced and made choices between those two sort of delivery systems about which info needs to go in which one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really easy to mess up. And if you want to see someone mess it up, go play Final Fantasy Thirteen. Yeah. A game whose codex contains the entire setup for the game and what's going on and who these people are and why you should care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because they, they don't bother to really tell you that too upfront in that game. Yeah. Like there's some ancillary dialogue in Final Fantasy Thirteen where they sort of do mention it, but... Yeah, if you really want to get the backstory, you have to actually read up about it. Whereas when you're playing Mass Effect, you learn about things like the first contact war. Like you're told about it. Like you're mm-hmm. not like explained. It's not explained to Shepard or anything like that. But they mention it's like, oh, man, those Turians, man, I hated them since the first contact war. Right. They really and you kicked go, our asses. Yeah. And then you go, maybe I should look that up. I wonder if that's in the codex. Right. Or if you're not interested in that, you don't need to learn it. You can just play the game and right. you just enjoy the story that's presented in front of you. But you can still use the contact, context clues of like, okay, first contact, so this is probably the first alien race we encountered. It was mm-hmm. the Turians. It was a war, so things didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were presumably a spacefaring race pre- that preceded us in space for hundreds if not thousands of years. So their tech was probably better. So they probably mm-hmm. kicked our asses pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's like a lot you can pick up without having to go digging for the details. But if you're the kind of player who does like to get more of that backstory information, it's there for you to go look at. Yeah, you totally can. And yeah, with with all that information that's present, and once again, it's it, it gets down to even the most minute details. And like they separate it out by making sure like the all really important information's up top like fully voiced and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And if you like want to learn about this like really weird side magazine that like one of the phrases puts out, you can learn about that too if you really want to, but yeah. it's, it's buried down there. Like they make sure not to like surface like like kind of useless, I, hard to call that useless information, but like, you know, information that's maybe not as pertinent. Right. Yeah, um, so it's, it's also one of the first games I can think of where they unlock that in pieces as yes. the information becomes relevant to what's happening. He has never dumped on you. Yeah. And then it's always like, hey, you have a new codex in- entry, like right after the relevant thing happens, that it's like, if you want to know more about what was just talked about, just press this button and we'll show you that entry. Yeah. Yeah, they, it's very smart that they do that. It it never feels overwhelming because of that. Yeah. So Mass Effect's development is relatively straightforward, at least for the first game. Like, considering, like... The grand scale of video games and whatnot. It, yeah, it seems for like the it first was, game. Yeah, it, it seems like it was relatively smooth, right? Mostly, so, yeah. So conceived of as early as 2003, with pre-production beginning as early as 2004. So like they were thinking about this while they were making Knights for the Old Republic. Mm-hmm. Mass Effect was, once again, conceived as a trilogy from the very beginning. Now, in order to put up all this groundwork... Bioware was obviously going to need a sizable amount of cash up front to make this happen. Like, video games cost a lot of money. Right. One video game costs a lot of money. Putting in the work and basically the foundation for three games, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, in November of 2005, they were going to get that cash because they announced a partnership with a private equity fund called Elevation Partners. Okay. While not, 
while not entirely sure of the nature of their investments beyond general media, I know two facts about them. They're named after the U2 song Elevation, which... Mm. Not a big U2 fan. Yeah. U2, uh, U2, U2, U2 has good songs. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Great yeah. song. Yep. Uh, got, got some good songs. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, El- don't like Elevation. Not, not a huge fan. Nah, kind of, kind of an eh song. Um, Welcome to this podcast where we randomly give our opinions on you two <laughs> out of nowhere. But it, it is actually relevant because Bono was part of, uh, uh, part of this partnership. All right. He was not one of the fa- he was not one of the founders, interestingly enough. <laughs> but he was one of the partners. Did he just a- see something with elevation in the name and go, "I got to get in on that"? I would not be shocked if somebody like yeah, one of these um, investment bros probably like. Talked to Bono and went, man, we really like Elevation. We named this partnership after you. You want, yeah. you want in? And he was like, cool, man. That does sound like a thing that would have happened. Oh, yeah. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. I can tell you, though, that one of their founders was John Riccatello, then president and CEO of Electronic Arts. So this made it very easy then in 2007 when EA just decided to buy both Bioware and another studio, Pandemic, from this fund. Because this is the sort of thing, when you're the head of both, you could just sort of make it happen. <laughs> okay, so I gotta take another tangent right at this moment, because I need to talk about electronic arts. Because I remember a time when EA wasn't the devil. I remember a time when electronic arts was not the worst thing in the world. In fact, they were pretty cool. Yep. For a lot of the PS2 era, EA made some really good games. They published some really good games. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made some really just a good business decisions that players liked a lot. Like mm-hmm. the EA Sports were doing pretty well then, but they also had yeah. the EA Big label for their more like out there extreme sports like SSX. And, yeah, the Street Series. And, yeah. yeah. And I remember when they picked out, when they uh, picked up games like Burnout, because Acclaim frickin' just burned to the ground, and Mm. I was sad, because I really liked Burnout, and Burnout was gonna go away, but then no, EA bought it, EA saved Burnout, Uh, EA saved Brutal Legend, Mm -hmm. Uh, they published Mirror's Edge sort of early on in the 360 era which was this weird kind of experimental free-running game out of the battlefield people which that's weird but okay i they're gonna like take a chance on this and just yeah see what happens and it was a really cool beautiful looking game yeah um so yeah all this to say that like in the ps2 in the ps1 the ps2 and even a part of the ps3 slash 360 era um EA was not the worst thing in the world, and in fact, they did a lot of things that people liked and that made people happy. Mm-hmm. And so when when this happened, when they bought Bioware and even Pandemic and started, you know, publishing Mass Effect, that was, that seemed pretty cool. Because, hey, Bioware's got money to do cool stuff now. Yep. Yeah, no, totally. And, like, it... EA was really cool up until the part point when like Skate Three came out. Yeah, and it was all downhill from there because like yeah. it was either then or right after that is like when the EA Wives thing came out when we 
we learned about like kind of like our first real true encounter like on a white mm-hmm. like a mainstream base of like video game crunch right? yeah and then that's when ea started just shuttering random studios because they weren't meeting uh, investment targets regardless yep. of success or not um and then yeah like this sp- they got a monopoly on the various sports series and they started to just kind of not care about them or focus on loot boxes right and then um, that led to eventually them yeah like getting the exclusive star wars license and then having the absolute opposite reaction uh, of when they bought bioware like yeah they bought bioware and put out this cool sci-fi game it's like that's rad yeah they bought star wars and they, well they got the star wars land oh no yeah yeah they got to pull that license and everyone's like oh could it be anybody else uh well maybe this will be they're they're gonna bring back battlefront oh no battlefront oh no uh <laughs> just to bring it full circle i think that that sort of ea wives thing if i recall correctly that was around the same time they uh released dante's inferno Hmm. and had that marketing campaign where they hired people to act like super conservative christian protesters outside of e3 to be video games are the devil go away as a publicity stunt and then it was revealed that was a publicity stunt and people went what Oh, I had to actually look this up. I, I forgot about that, by the way. Yeah, that was one of the dumbest things in the world. Everything about Dante's Inferno is the dumbest thing in the world. It really is. Oh, boy. For, for something that's at best an average action-adventure game. Now, I will throw out... It's This is a complete tangent at this point. Uh, Dante's Inferno, I don't think, is one of the dub- dumbest publicity stunts from that time period, possibly even that year, because right around then, Ubisoft decided to advertise Splinter Cell Conviction by having an <laughs> seemingly armed man walk into some French cafe or something and stage a robbery. Oh, right. <laughs> that people did not know was staged. Because of course not. Why would they have, have realism to this, Alex? Jesus Christ. <laughs> So that one always takes the cake for that period of time in my mind. Like, Dante's Inferno is a little over there, like, whatever. You you pretended to have some angry people modeled off after people who are actually angry. Like, okay, you didn't stage an armed robbery, so... What, one of the things that makes me sad about the fact that companies now realize you can just use influencers to essentially advertise your game with usually a lot less controversy mm-hmm. is the, all these done mar- dumb marking stunts. They yeah. don't exist anymore. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll Bur- never have another acclaim saying we'll pay off your speeding tickets. If you buy burnout. <laughs> or maybe you should name your son Turok and you'll get a free <laughs> year's supply of whatever. I, I forget what it was. Uh, yeah. Or something. Turok. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, I yeah. Miss I, acclaim. I, I kind of do too. <laughs> That that was a fun train wreck. Oh boy, was it! So I, I do want to give a bit of a clarification on EA Wise thing that actually happened a lot earlier than I thought it did. Mm. That was two thousand and four. Okay, yeah. Happened. Okay, never mind. Yeah. So that was. Yeah. So I, I knew it was early on, but for some reason I thought that was post Mass Effect. But no, apparently the settlement was post Mass Effect. It was okay. um, late in two thousand seven when that right. was all settled out. So yeah. So. Point is still that EA wasn't considered completely evil until a little bit after Mass Effect. Like, at the time that this began, I would take EA over Activision any day of the week. Oh, God, yeah. I 
nowadays I probably still would. I go back and forth on an almost daily basis. <laughs> it's it's a deal with the devil regardless. Yeah. <laughs> so, once again, this sort of acquisition did turn out to be a bit of a blessing. It gave Bioware the funding it needed to make the project a reality. In a very not-EA sort of move, they seemed to recognize this as a sure thing and sort of kept out of Bioware's business. This allowed Bioware to concentrate on the game. Uh, key players who worked on the game included Casey Hudson, mm -hmm. who was the director and co-writer of the game scenario and plot, and also he was the director of Knights of the Old Republic, which I actually did not realize. And a name I'm going to butcher, but it is important, um, uh, Drew Kaparshan, who is the main writer for the first two games, but strangely, mm -hmm. not the third. Hmm. Hmm. Funny that. Wonder if there's going to be some problems when that comes up. I wonder. Uh, talented voice actors and actresses were brought in, including longtime collaborators such as uh, Raphael Sabarge, voice of all bad characters at Bioware such as Karth, <laughs> the incomparable Jennifer Hale, who mm -hmm. was the voice of uh, the female Commander Shepard, and of course, Keith motherfucking David. Yeah. Don't need to say anything else. Whenever Keith David shows up, Keith David should just keep speaking because yep. he's, just, he's fantastic. Whenever Keith David isn't on screen, all the other characters should be asking, where's Keith David? <laughs> exactly, exactly. As, as another aside, I, I saw the trailer for like the new Rick and Morty season. And I was like, not really that interested. And then Keith David's character showed up. And I'm like, okay, nah, right, yep, pay attention now. Yep. Uh, you got me. It's all you need. So the game's development seemed to go smoothly. It was hyped all over the place, and upon its release, seemed to live up to the hype. It had an overall Metacritic score of 91% on Xbox, I believe. I think PC was 89. Mm -hmm. And everything seemed like it was going Bioware's way. Except for one slight controversy. Mm. And by controversy, I mean Fox News got bored one randomly, oh, and right-wing media jumped on it. I actually forgot about this. I did, too, until I started looking this up, and then I went, oh, no. Like, it's so nothing that I actually didn't even bother to remember it existed. <laughs> but it really occupied, like, it really it occupied did, the airwaves. It for, like, was a massive. solid week. Yeah. It was the biggest deal. And there's oh. just nothing to it. There really isn't. And before we jump into it, though, I, I do want to ask you, Alex, mm -hmm. what do you think about Bioware and the romance subplots? <sighs> I personally think they're usually terrible. Bad. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. say bad. Generally bad. Occasionally kind of touching. Mm -hmm. Usually just feel shoehorned and obligatory. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that, like, their laziest one is probably their best at least in my opinion, the one in Knights of Old Republic with uh, Bastila. Because that... <laughs> I, don't not, I don't know. I don't know. I. It's not saying much. I'm not, I'm not saying that's, that, that's saying much. I, I don't... Mm, a lot of mm, negging goes on in that one. That little, not, little that, bit. It's not great. Yeah. I, 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 the only thing I really remember th about that romance plot line is just getting to the end where you can be like, I love you, Bastila. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, yeah, I love you too. And I'm like, yeah, that's sort of how I feel about this whole romance. My favorite part about that, because I, I know what scene you're thinking of, like, um, you know, Bastila is part of the dark side now. And you're trying to convince her that you love her. Right. But if you fail the speech check, <laughs> she goes, eh, I don't know if I really believe you. <laughs> I love you too. 
And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> sure, okay. <laughs> All right, sure, whatever. Oh man, yeah, it's it's rough. It's yeah. rough. So, so generally not great. Again, some of them I think are okay. Yeah, I, I will say there's one in Mass Effect Two that I like, but we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about Mass Effect Two. Really, yeah. The point is that Bioware has had by this point become known for their their plots uh, having adequately, I would say, adequately done romance subplots. Um, as as mentioned again, their subplots are usually all right, and in the sense of Jade Empire, they're actually kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know if you remember this about Jade Empire, but it was really easy to mess up. Yeah, which I actually really liked because you could talk and like have a good casual conversation with somebody. And then not realize you got locked out of the romance subplot until right. the end of the game. Which, honestly, I liked, because that's yeah, how it goes in real life. Yeah, sometimes you just you... sort of get friend-zoned sometimes. Yeah, and it's like, that. well, that's fine. That's life. Yeah. And I loved that. Because I was like, ha! You can't just pick the one that has the heart next to it, like in yeah. Mass Effect. Yeah. Which, by the way, that's how it works in Mass Effect. Yeah, Usually they'll have like oh either boy. romance or heart next to it. That, to that let is, you know. Right, that is how that is, isn't it? Hmm. Yep. Press button to win love. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, Mass so Effect didn't do it great. They did not, but they did want to go all out. This would, yep. after all, conceivably be a relationship you would carry throughout the, your entire trilogy. So they want to include, first off, multiple romance options for both the male and female characters. And for the female character, that included a lesbian relationship in all but name. It's one of those things where it's, you, it technically isn't, but you it sort is. Sort of, yeah. The relationship then would later be consummated in-game, and you would see a very PG-13 sex scene that includes flashes of a butt on occasion. <laughs> which is what leads to this game technically having a nudity tag on Steam. Yep. This yep. ended up getting some play in the marketing at the time. I remember they actually kind of played this up. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but otherwise, it, it should have been unremarkable. Except that it wasn't. Oh, God. Oh. On January 13th, 2008, on townhall.com, Kevin Bicola, a conservative writer known for books such as The Kind of Man Every Man Should Be, which is exactly the type of book you think it is, wrote The Sex Bot Race for President. <laughs> If that article title doesn't make sense, it, it doesn't. It's an article that criticizes the game for allowing its players to engage in the most realistic sex acts ever conceived, which, no, no. I, I mean, maybe, no. One can custom design the shape, form, bodies, race, hair, style, breast size, not true, of the images they wish to engage and then watch in crystal clear, oh, HD, 54-inch screen, HD clarity, as this video game person's hump in every form, format, multiple, gender-oriented possibility they could think of. In case you're wondering, there are so many commas in this because it's something about conservative writers and not actually putting periods, it's just, they just don't understand the concept of it. It's frustrating to ever read anything from, well, like... Well, see, if your sentence ends, it gives someone else an opportunity to stop talking, so you need to never let it end. Oh, God, that is the reason, right? Even in writing, when they're by themselves... The point is, though, is that what he said is not true because there's no male-on-male relationship options. Just to point that out. Yeah, and of sure. course, And, of course, there's other, you know, just smaller things that are like, yeah, I guess you can customize Shepard, but 
you don't have that much control and it's it's, it's all sorts of weird it's just yeah it's wildly inaccurate and incredibly sensationalist and just uh, yeah he further goes on to state that because of the digital chip age in which we live mass effects can be customized to sodomize whatever whoever however the player wishes and with his over the net capabilities virtual orgasmic rape is just a push of a button away what yeah. Wait, I okay. Know what, I don't even know what that means. Let's just break down that state. No, in fact, you know what? Let's not. Let's not. <laughs> it's not worth the use of the human brain to you, analyze you, any part of that. You don't want to figure out what the hell he means by virtual orgasmic rape? I don't. I don't. <laughs> oh, man. It's like this man watched like one episode of some like dystopian sci-fi show, like some Outer Limits episode. Mm-hmm. where they're like, they're having the VR sex. And he went, this is what the future will be. God. This kind of sort of would be whatever, because while, you know, Kevin McCullough was sort of, kind of-ish big at the time, he really wasn't that mainstream. Right. But then Fox News had to step in. In a segment on Live Desk, hosted by Martha McCallum, in a horrifically titled uh, a segment too, it for some reason, they just really insist on uh, using the name Sexbox. It's it's like no originality. It's, it's awful. It's awful. But anyways, the point is, is that uh, she states that the game leaves nothing to the imagination and features the ability to for players to engage in full graphic sex, which once again, no. No. So she had two people on there. Uh, she had video game journalist Jeff Keighley. All right. And... Psychology specialist Cooper Lawrence. And basically, it's a, it's a really fun eight-minute interview to watch uh, that mm-hmm. I don't recommend watching. But if you do watch <laughs> it, it's a lot of Jeff Keighley looking very, very done with what's going on. <laughs> but Lawrence describes the sexual content in video games as teaching their active users to consider women as objects of desire valued so solely for their sexuality. I don't okay. know if I just, I don't know if I necessarily completely disagree with that, but I think she is overrotting it in mass effect. She, she she is very much overstating it and twisting it to her end goals. Yes. But I will say she's not necessarily giving the romance plot lines in Bioware games too little credit. <laughs> no, she is not. She added that the game's player character is a man, which once again could also be a woman. Yeah. Who decides how many women he wants to be with, which, no. No. Keeley focused on challenging the accuracy of her statements and asked her if she actually played the game, to which she responded, no. Bioware's parent company, Electronic Arts, requested a correction from Fox News, but they simply responded that the company had been offered a chance to appear on the channel. Uh, they would later issue a retraction to this uh, segment. So uh, they, they, they basically did apologize. Yeah. After watching somebody play the game for two and a half hours, uh, Cooper Lawrence later retracted her earlier statements. She added that she had been told the game was similar to pornography and noted that she has seen episodes of Lost that were more sexually explicit. <laughs> yes. In the interim, largely as a reaction from offended gaming, the gaming community, her latest book attracted many customer reviews on Amazon, which rated one star out of five noting satirically that they had not read her book, but heard for some somebody else that her book was bad, thus and thus voted low. All right. Uh, hmm. That seems yeah. petty. 
It's it's very, very petty. It's very, very petty, but, you know. The controversy itself was so overblown and so ridiculous that Jack Thompson, of all people... Oh, once, God. Yeah, Jack Thompson... There's said, a name I haven't heard in years. A man who was so against, like, violence and sexual acts in video games that like, he was an anti-obscenity camp- campaigner, and he was so ridiculous that he actually got disbarred by the florida bar <laughs> the florida bar the florida bar first off it is very tough to be disbarred yes you have to try jack thompson found the way to do so in florida oh god and he said in reference to all of this this contrived controversy is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> he even thought that this was stupid he said the guy who shot his mouth off has absolutely no idea what the hell he's talking about now, to be fair, I don't know if Jack Thompson just had a moment of clarity on this subject, or if he was just mad he wasn't the one who instigated it. Oh, yeah, he wasn't first across the line with this one? Yeah. Yeah, we, we really could go either way with this, right? Really I could believe could. either or. So this was obviously a completely ridiculous segment, and as Alex mentioned, like, and I mentioned, like, we kind of forgot about it. It just kind of faded away. Yeah. But it still had an effect. Sex scenes and even gay and lesbian relationship options were toned down or removed from Mass Effect 2. And while it's never definitively stated, it does seem this backlash had something to do with it. Because there were lines of dialogue that were recorded for scenes between certain characters like that were gay or lesbian relationships that were removed from that game. All right. So this clearly had an effect. And like the sex scenes in Mass Effect 2 are the most nothing sort of things in the world. Yes. Uh, which is fine. It, they, they don't have to be more than that. They really don't. But the point is, is that they clearly looked at this and went, we need, let's not upset these people. And given that it kind of erased the potential gay and lesbian relationships that would not show back up until three, like, I, I think that's for the worst overall. Yeah, I agree. It also feels like, okay, just to make sure I don't sound like an EA apologist with my earlier statements. I'm going to lay that decision at EA's feet. I'm just going to assume that was a publisher decision. I would not be shocked, yeah. I I wouldn't be shocked about that at all. And it's... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and, like, it's it's impossible to say because we just... Right. The documentation as far as, like, the development for Mass Effect, um, there's a couple of oral histories out there, but it's it's not... There's not as information dense as some other games. So it's impossible to know, but I I would guess that, yeah, EA probably had, had something to do with it. Right. Which is shitty and despicable enough on its own, but just takes on this incredibly disingenuous, spineless taste when mm. you compare it to what I want to say was the launch trailer for Dragon Age Origins mm. that came out a year or two earlier. Which was effectively served to highlight, look how much sex and violence is in this Dragon Age game to oh, the yeah. tune of Marilyn Manson. Right, yeah. Or even, like, for Mass Effect, like I said, they played up those sex scenes. Yeah. So okay. it, it feels incredibly, oh yeah, let's let's use this when it's to our advantage, but, you know, don't don't upset anybody. Yeah, no. <sighs> yeah, the whinging was just the worst. So yeah, if anyone was 
going to be afraid that I was going to, you know, try and back EA through all of this. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, uh, this this is a very this is a very anti EA podcast. The bus anti- is coming. Yeah. Anti publisher in general, usually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty. Yeah, pretty much. When we talk about Activision and Ubisoft games, let me guarantee you, I am not oh, going to have yeah. good things to say about oh, them. Oh, I, I, I hope the Splinter Cell segment is coming one day, because, oh boy. <laughs> oh God, Splinter Cell. Oh God. But yeah, don't, don't you worry. The bus is coming, and I got a nice little space of road picked out for EA. Mm-hmm. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> uh, well... With all of that, I think it's time that we talked a little bit about the plot of Mass Effect. Let's do that. Now, before we get into this, just a little bit of background and forewarning and whatnot. Uh, This is going to be the one of the few cases where I'm actually going to say spoiler warning because Mm -hmm. uh, the the new Mass Effect remasters are out. Yep. I I would presume that if you are following this podcast and you are listening to to this episode about Mass Effect, you're probably okay with Mass Effect spoilers, but I, I figured it's probably best to make sure. Uh, yeah. We probably will jump into like Mass Effect 2 and 3 spoilers on occasion, uh, just as a forewarning that if you're just expecting this to be about just Mass Effect today, we I may allude to other events in the future, uh, so you just may want to be a little bit wary about that. I'm not going to just outright tell you the plots of those games yet, but just just be warned. The second is, once again, since there's a lot of choices and a lot of different events that do happen, there is definitely a through line to these games, but sometimes you reach a pivotal decision. Um, I will probably try to go a little bit into what that decision entails, what the different paths are. Not into too, too much detail, but we, we may take a little bit of time with that. Right. And finally, the last thing is that you can play as either a male or a female shepherd. For the purposes of this, because I played through the game as a femship, because mm-hmm. Jennifer Hale rocks, and yep. that's just what I did. Uh, I'm going to be referring to Shepard as as she. So just don't get confused about that, I suppose. Okay. That is, and, I believe, uh, anthropolog- anthropologically correct hmm. also. How is it now? I, I want to say that she is the gender-neutral pronoun for anthropology, but I should... I oh, should yes, that. yes. I, I, think, I think you're correct about that, yeah. I don't know why that flew over my head for a second. All right, so with that, let's jump in to the story Mass Effect. So the reason why we're only going to be going over Mass Effect this time around is because there's obviously going to be a lot of story and background and whatnot that we're going to be getting into. But to start with, in the year 2183, a prototype Alliance warship known as the SSV Normandy travels from Earth's orbit to the mass relay of Sharon. On board it is Captain Anderson, once again voiced by Keith fucking David, who is in discussion with Admiral Hackett of... uh, Systems Alliance Command, and Ad- Ambassador Donald Adina, concerning a member of their crew, a one Commander Shepard. They're talking about whether or not she could potentially become the first human Spectre. Spectres being kind of like, essentially the co- cross between the Navy SEALs and CIA for something called the Citadel Council, an overarching governing body, body of all the alien races. Meanwhile, though, this ship is on its way to Eden Prime on its first ever mission in order to just shake it down and see how the systems are going. So at this point, humanity has been on the world stage for a very short while. Uh, they essentially have only known about other alien races for about 35 years. They had discovered an ancient alien artifact on Mars, 
which was called a the I forget what exactly it was called, but it was a what's considered a Prothean artifact. Protheans being this ancient alien race that existed like ten thousand years before and just suddenly disappeared, or thereabouts. After they discovered this, they ended up being able to develop uh, space travel at an alarmingly quick rate. They discovered this big machine called a mass relay just outside of Pluto's moon, Charon. And that's how they were able to travel the wider galaxy. Sometime after that, they began establishing galaxies. Uh, establishing galaxies, that'd be really impressive. <laughs> they been, began establishing colonies when they ended up running into a race of beings called the Turians. Uh, Turians are kind of weird lizard or insect sort of people. They, they're humanoid in nature. They're just very scaly and rough and what looking whatnot. And they were a very militaristic race. And they saw that they were colonizing these random planets and opening up these mass relays and they went, oh, you're not supposed to be doing that because they're basically the space cops and attacked mm. them. This led to the first contact war where the comparatively small systems alliance military, which is basically just the, the name of like the collective military might of the Earth, fought against the Turians. And despite the fact that the Turians should theoretically be more advanced, they kind of got fought to a standstill. Eventually, the war was going to escalate to this really big thing when the Citadel, uh, the Citadel Council stepped in. It basically introduced themselves to humanity and the wider world of what's going on, all the different races, and said, you should probably stop this or we're all going to war with you. <laughs> and also told the Turians to stand down as well. And so that's how humanity came onto the scene. Because of this, though, humanity is considered newcomers to the, to the greater galaxy. And they're also considered a very militaristic society because they shouldn't be this advanced, but they were able to fight in a way that was very outsized compared to their relative size and power. Uh, so they're kind of looked at with great suspicion, and because of that, human-Turian relations are also not that great. The Normandy is supposed to be something that bridges this gap. This is a ship that was co-developed by both the Alliance military and the Turian hierarchy, and it's meant to kind of represent the two races starting to come together. So they're going on the way to this shakedown mission when Commander Shepard is called into a meeting room with Captain Anderson and another Turian uh, named Nihilus. Nihilus is a Spectre, and he's been sent by the Council to observe uh, Commander Shepard to see if she's going to be worthy to be part of the Spectres. And this is going to be just their first mission. And it turns out this mission is not going to be just a shakedown run. They're heading to this human colony called Eden Prime to find this Prothean artifact. And so, depending on how well Shepard does in this mission and other missions, she may become the first human specter, which would really raise the prestige of, of humanity in general and help out their overall goals of being seen as an equal. So, you know, they are talking and whatnot when they get an alert that Eden Prime is now under attack. And they see footage of Alliance soldiers fighting, and they see this giant purplish, almost... It's hard to see because it's out of focus, but it looks like a giant ship that's just, like, blowing things up on the surface. And, like, and a kind of great shot, like, you just see the still image, and you just see all three of their reactions, and they're just, like, blank expressions. Because they just clearly can't comprehend what's going on. And so Anderson is like, alright, we need to go in there, and we need to, like, just deal with this. So... They go down and touch down Eden Prime, and they sent down an away team with Commander Shepard, Corporal Richard Jenkins, who I guarantee you is going to live very long, <laughs> and our first actual squad mate, Caden Alenko. 
Caden is a biotic human. Uh, biotics are humans who basically have mind powers because he got e exposed to something called Element Zero, a new element that humanity discovered uh, that's known to the wider galaxy that just gives you the ability to do really weird gravity warping powers, essentially. Mm -hmm. He's a very, very competent soldier, and he's also pretty by the books. He is also kind of a dipshit. <laughs> he is he fills the role that the uh, Carthanassus uh fills in Nice of the Old Republic of somebody who you just he like he presents himself as like upstanding soldier and then he talks for more than five seconds and you're like go go away. <laughs> oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I do not like Caden is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So Shepard we probably should describe what Shepard is like as well a little bit. So Commander Shepard, the main character, is named for astronaut Alan Shepard, uh, the first uh, American in space and the second human overall to ever achieve um, space travel. Uh, she is the stalwart leader and EXO of the Normandy, an excellent soldier serving in the Systems Alliance N7 Special Forces program. She is very serious about her job. Uh, Shepard, you're allowed to select a variety of backgrounds from her, uh, such as uh, like coming from the Earth, living as a street rat, or like being the child of a military family, traveling from colony to colony. But the point is, she eventually joins the Systems Alliance military, and through some sort of heroic action, becomes famous within the military as being a bit of a badass. Uh, these include being just like the sole survivor of your unit, a war hero who fought slavers, or literally a war criminal who executed prisoners. <laughs> In my first playthrough, I for some reason picked the war criminal. <laughs> I don't really know why. But yeah, overall, very, very serious in buyer books. She's kind of a dork mm. in a way that's kind of endearing. Yeah. Um, like whenever she, whenever she goes to a bar and has to like dance or whatnot, it's, it's, <laughs> quite, it's quite good. Oh, yes. So they um, end up down on the, on the surface and they realize that this alien race of synthetics called the geth are attacking uh we won't quite get into what the geth are right now but they're basically robots and they haven't been seen for quite a long time by any other species yeah they're essentially the cylons for everyone familiar with battlestar galactica yeah that's that's a pretty good one-to-one -one comparison e evil rogue killer robots that mm. were bad news and then they disappeared for a while yeah exactly exactly so they fight them off, and they run into, well, Jenkins gets immediately killed, like, within five right. seconds. Yes. And then you run into your second party member, Gunnery Chief Ashley Williams. After saving Williams, um, she can't exactly explain why the Geth are here, but she's like, hey, I'm going to join up with you. We're going to take them down. Ashley Williams is a space racist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. Uh, for lack of a better term, uh, she is her she comes from a military family her family ended up being disgraced because her father was a commander during the first contact war who surrendered to the turians mm -hmm. and so because of that um, her family is a bit disgraced and she harbors first off quite a bit of hatred towards the turians and also just a lot of hatred towards the um towards other alien species in general really just more of a derision well really more derision towards some of them mm -hmm. as opposed to hatred as I remember she has like some sort of line like randomly where she's like 
you know, it seems like for the only like sentient species here and the rest of them are all just animals or something like that. Like something right. real messed up. Yeah. A line that actually ends up getting remixed really great in Mass Effect 2, where depending on some choices you make, you end up hearing like how she has a bit of a memorial and uh, they talk about how she was known for a famous in line of human or alien, we're all just animals. Like she's like, no, she's totally <laughs> cool. And it's like, no, she isn't, she's a racist. <laughs> But yeah, uh, Ashley sucks. Uh, she's she's also very by the books and very military. I've I've met a million Ashley Williams in my life. Mm. So the Williams leads them to the dig site where they found the uh, Prothean artifact, and they're examining like a nearby camp, and they see that they run they run into these like human corpses that have been reanimated by the Geth called husks, like they're weird like half synthetic, half organic zombies, and uh, they're like by jamming a giant spike through them and that somehow makes them zombies it's weird sure but like and they're shaken by this but they like they kill them and like niles is like hey catch up with me at the spaceport i'll be there well we're gonna take all of them down so niles gets to the spaceport himself and he runs into another turian specter named Saren arturius Saren is basically the most badass of specters he is the <laughs> longest serving turian specter at 24 years he fought in the first contact war and in general, he has a policy of getting things done no matter what. Uh, he has a bit himself a bit of a dim view of humanity, owing to the fact he lost a brother in the first contact war. And, but regardless of that, he's incredibly skilled, brutal and cunning, known for ruthless efficiency and his ability to get results. He follows two principles in life. The first principle being never kill anyone without a good reason. And principle number two being, you can always find a reason to kill someone, <laughs> which is pretty good. Yeah. So Nihilus runs into him. He's surprised that he's here. And like Nihilus is like, man, things are bad. And like he turns away from Saren. Saren's like, ah, don't worry. I got everything controlled. And lifts a gun up and then shoots him. <laughs> so Saren kills him, leaves, orders the Geth to destroy the colony of explosives. So we learn that he's teamed up with them. And um, he approaches the Prothean Beacon, like lifts him up and whatnot. Like, Shepard's team managed to, to get there, and um, they defeat the last of the Geth and, like, disarm the demolition charges. And then when Shepard gets to the beacon, she gets a little too close and gets caught, like, an airfield and, like, is, like, dragged towards it. And then once she does, she sees a horrific vision of, like, weird, like, cuttlefish aliens and, like, or, like synthetics like fighting organic life and like this really freaky scene of like like a flesh monster opening its mouth and screaming it's really messed up yeah the beacon then explodes and shepherd is thrown to the ground unconscious so seems like they completely have failed their mission there is one thing i want to point out about the scene where Saren shows up mm -hmm. which is like his entire face is lit up with weird purple technology and lights. Oh, yeah. And, like, the other Turian who seems to know him is just... Doesn't say a thing about it. Yeah, not even a cool face lights, bro, anyways. Yeah, like, no one mentions... Say, Saren, uh... Why are you, like, filled with robot all of a sudden? Yeah, he's he's very techno-organic. Like, I think his left arm is also like a geth arm, essentially. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's He he looks like a guy who's been through some shit. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just people have seen him like that before, and they're like, ah, mm. oh, look at that, that's Sarah, and he got 
He got the cool LED lights. He could just set right. them to whatever color he wants. Maybe. But like, oh, was anyone in... going to mention he's a cyborg or? Oh, he's in red mood right now. Oh, I wonder what that means. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's never really brought up. But yeah, so after all this happens, we see that Saren is now aboard like a huge dreadnought. He's getting a report by an Asari matriarch. We'll talk a little bit about the Asari in a bit. The news, though, isn't good. It turns out that Eden Prime itself was saved by Captain Anderson's crew, and one of them may have used the beacon. So Saren is incredibly upset about this, throwing furniture around, like, puts the Asari matriarch in a chokehold, and eventually calms himself down. And he realizes, though, that this human needs to be eliminated. So after the Edian Prime attack, Shipper wakes up in the medical unit. Uh, we meet Dr. Chakwas, who's great. She's just an yes. old doctor lady. Uh, and has a fantastic story behind her that, fortunately, we're probably not going to really talk about. But cool cool character. Great character. Uh, and, like, she notes, like, to Alenko and Will, uh, to Caden and Ashley that Commander's uh, physically okay, but, like, she seems to have like some sort of psychological trauma, and Shipper mentions the visions but can't really explain it. Uh, Captain Anderson then tells uh, Shepard about what happened with Saren, and also like kind of gives a little bit of backstory about himself. Like it turns out Captain Anderson also served in the first contact war, and actually was the first graduate of the EN7 program. He was a very decorated soldier, mm -hmm. and was going to be the first human specter, but he ended up failing his mission with the, where he was on a mission with uh, Saren, and Saren according to Anderson, betrayed him and then lied to the council and got him thrown out of the Spectre program. So Anderson doesn't have a whole lot of good things to say about him or really mm -hmm. Turians at large. It's, but needless to say, he, he recognizes Sarah being a dick when he sees it. Right. And he's like, if Sarah's in charge of the Geth, he must have gone rogue. We need to tell the council. So they go to the Citadel, which is this giant spaceship just out in the middle of absolute nowhere that is the seat of the Citadel government. Uh, the Citadel government being made up of three different species, the Turians being one of them, the Asari being another, and a third being the Solarians. You don't talk about the Solarians a whole lot in the first game. Solarians come in their own in the second game. Yeah. But um, they're the three members of the council who, the three races that make up the, the council. And so upon arriving on the Citadel, we meet Ambassador Donald Udina, who's a real jerk. Yeah. He talks in like a really deep voice. He comes from like a prominent human family, and he happens to be the guy who speaks for humanity to the council, which uh, usually results in the council being like, you please stop calling us. I know you can't have an ambassador. <laughs> you can't have an actual council member. You've only been here for 35 years. It took the Turians like 300. I... <laughs> How did you get this number? How did you? Oh God! Yeah, he's, he's he's basically very annoying. He's very abrasive, and um, he's not good at reading the room. Absolutely awful at reading the room. And like the second like you land to go see him, like he immediately is just on Anderson's ass. He's like, "You just completely right. failed this. You know that we're gonna really hear it from the council. Shepard is a failure. She really sucks." She's probably I, not going to be a specter. I don't know Spectre. if he knows what an ambassador is. I'm not really sure either. He He's more of just like a politician who happens to be in charge of talking to other people for reasons I'll never understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, 
it's like they wanted to have like a clear like point politician character and so they just right. sort of made it be udina yeah and yeah no it udina oversteps his bounds basically every second he's on the screen <laughs> pretty much <laughs> so he does succeed in getting an audience with the council which immediately doesn't go well because the alliance has basically no evidence of Saren. right and they basically just like like Shepard tells them the vi- of their vision, they go, ah, so you're going to be the person who's going to maybe be the first human specter, huh? Anyways, well, we, we assigned this dude from CSEC, which is basically space police, to, to investigate this. Maybe we'll find something, but right. probably not. And so Udina and Shepard talk a little bit, and he goes, hey, you probably should go find this officer and maybe talk to him. Maybe see what he got. And so this is where we meet... Maybe one of my favorite party members. Maybe one of my favorite characters ever. Yes. Garrus Vicarian. Yes. Oh, everyone's space bro. Yes. Garrus is the best. He's the champion. Mm-hmm. He's the last good cop on the Citadel. So Garrus Vicarian, a Turing cop with CSEC or Citadel Security. He's basically the last good cop in the Citadel. Mm-hmm. Garrus has an incredibly dry sense of humor and a strong sense of justice. Though he finds it frustrating to work within the confines of CSEC's bureaucracy. He's, a, he's kind of on the verge of being shoot first, ask questions later, but he kind of pulls himself back at the last moment. Right. He's known as an expert sniper, and himself was actually considered for the Spectres. Though, as he explains, basically all Turians are. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, ah, I was one of in a thousand, but his, his father happened to be like a police officer himself, and he kind of sabotaged the process. Right. And he was like, ah, I didn't really want to work the Spectres anyways. But but yeah, unlike other members of his species, he actually has a pretty decent view on humanity. He, he actually regards them more of curiosity, if anything else. Mm. And as we'll see throughout the game, he kind of ends up looking up the Shepherd. And as the series goes on, he he easily grows on you because he just basically becomes your space bro. Pretty much. He's also one of the only characters who's a party member in all three games i think it's him and tally yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah which greatly helps yes greatly greatly helps Uh, because yeah like those are the two that come to my mind as like your standbys yeah totally yeah 100 percent uh and uh it's it's clear that they kept them kept them coming back because it's clear that they had the idea in later games to have just like different like a completely different crew each time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Garrus and who we're going to talk about later, Tally, uh, both ended up being super duper popular, and so they just brought them back, and it's all all the better. Yeah, it really works to their advantage. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they end up meeting up with Garrus, and he's investigating the charges against Saren, and he's immediately frustrated because. Since Saren is a specter, he's untouchable. So he tries to investigate something and it's like, no, these are all classified. Or he tries mm-hmm. to figure out his whereabouts and he can't find him. Nobody wants to talk about him because everyone's afraid of him. So Garrus is just incredibly, incredibly frustrated about this. Right. But they do get another lead that a um, a Volus, uh, kind of like a Volus broker, financial expert uh volus being these like really tiny squat guys who have to breathe methane so they have like full spacesuits mm-hmm. they look kind of like moles and um they need to speak to this one particular one by the name of barla vaughn who maybe will be able to tell him what's going on barla vaughn turns him on to another person who may be able to help him 
a Krogan by the name of Erdnot Rex. Yeah. Speaking of another character who is great. <laughs> Fantastic. Erdnot Rex, or just Rex as he's known, is a Krogan. Krogan, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what they are, but they're basically giant space turtles. Yes. Uh, and they are very, very long-living. They live well over a thousand years. Um, he himself is old as hell. He comes from a prestigious line of warriors in Clan Erdnot, with his father being a leader of one of the bigger tribes with the, within the clan. Uh, Rex, from his youth, was always an inspiring leader. Uh, he became one of the youngest members of the species to lead a tribe. And because of an event called the Genophage, he has sort of different views about how the Krogan should live. The Genophage being basically a mass sterilization and ethnic cleansing of the Krogans that we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about the Krogans themselves. Oh, the Krogans might be one of the best, like, world-building exercises in all of Mass Effect. Yeah, and in fact, let's just talk about them right now. This is just, there's no better time. Yeah. So, back in the early days of the Citadel Council and whatnot, uh, there was really only two major races, right? There was the Asari and there's the Salarians. And they were opening mm -hmm. up like mass relays everywhere, exploring and being like, this is all exciting. Until they happened to open up a mass relay to a basically a bug planet <laughs> that hosted a species called Arachne, were like weird bugs that knew how to knew how to space travel and had a hive mind. Now, in a what's gonna be a recurring theme, the council couldn't communicate with them. So they went, oh, God, we need to blow them up. They're evil. Right. And that started the Rachni Wars, which went immediately badly because they are <laughs> very vicious creatures who reproduce quickly. So the Salarians, though, had an idea. They found this race of species called the Krogan, who the Krogan, growing up on this planet called Tushanka, were actually a prey species. You can tell because they actually have white set eyes instead of narrow eyes like most prey a predator animals do. Right. But they're just so damn tough and so damn smart that eventually they just conquered the planet regardless. <laughs> the problem is that they really love the fight. And they've <laughs> nuked their planet over multiple times. <laughs> and in order to make up for this, they basically reproduce like mad. So the Salarians found this and went, hmm, I wonder if we should teach them space travel and sick them on the Rachne. And in return, we'll give them a planet. And they went, great idea. And it turns out it was. They beat the hell out of the Rackety. Boy, and, did they. And basically, they erased them from existence. Uh, so the Krogan managed to successfully do this, and they were rewarded with a planet that was actually hospitable. This my, just to say, one of my favorite codex entries is on the Krogans, which I believe starts with, prior to the discovery of gunpowder weaponry, the number one cause of death for the Krogan species was eaten by predators. Subsequently, <laughs> it was death by firearm. <laughs> this is, yes. It is such a good codex entry. And it's such a, it's such a tone setter. It really is. Because it's like, imagine if like turtles learned how to use guns. Yeah, pretty much. And they and, were, more than that, they really liked guns. Mm -hmm. They were like, these are great. Yeah, they, they basically... They're definitely the could have, not should have race. Well, no, the, the Slayers are the could have, not should have race. They're the, right. we have nuclear weapons. We should see what these do. Yeah. Why wouldn't we use them? We have them. Yeah, exactly. What's deterrence? Deterrence is killing your enemy first. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's actually not out of line with the some American generals during the Truman era. Bit. But, yeah. but uh, 
but yeah, so so the Krogan had this uh, combination of living incredibly long and also being able to reproduce like crazy. So they quickly outstripped their planet's resources and they started getting other planets. This <laughs> led to them also sometimes killing other sentient species and taking their planets, which was a slight problem. Oops, so the- we made us oops, we made the space huns. Yeah. So they they tried to stop the um, the Krogans from doing this, and the Krogans went, "Well, we have guns and the ability to kill you." Yeah, and the Salarians and we're really went, good at it. Yeah, and the Salarians went. Uh, <laughs> what if we found another spacefaring race and uplifted them and took and turned them on them? And that's how the Turians came into the picture. <laughs> <laughs> now, granted, I think the Turians already knew how to do space travel, but the right. Salarians ran into them and went, "Hey, help." Um, can you fight these guys? And it turns out the Turians were really good at it. Yeah. Now, that being said, it was still a losing war because, simply put, the Krogan could reproduce beyond any sort of measure. So the Salarians, being geniuses, came up with a plan. What if they introduced essentially a virus that made, I think it was like 90% of all females sterile? I think even more than that. Something like that, yeah. An extremely high number. Yeah, and so called the genophage, they gave it to the Turians who immediately dumped it on the home planet of Chuchanka and wherever they could find any Krogans. Right. This was incredibly successful. Krogan populations dropped. And because of that, they are now sort of a dying species. This has given them quite a bit of ennui about their situation. Uh, some Krogan are, you know, gnashing against the dying light, fighting to the very bitter end. Mm-hmm. Other Krogans have sort of accepted their fate as a species that may not exist for much longer. And Rex is sort of one of those. Rex himself believed that they shouldn't fight, but rather they should just concentrate on trying to breed and trying to figure out a way around this genophage. But given that the entirety of the Krogans are like, we should just murder whatever we can find, right. uh, Rex's father was not for this. And so Rex's father actually ambushed him and tried to kill him. Mm, right. Rex, of course, is a badass and killed him. <laughs> but because of this, he chose to turn his back on the Krogans. And the Rex we see in Mass Effect is incredibly weary and jaded about the world and has since then become like a famous bounty hunter and mercenary. And he's just shockingly blunt. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the younger characters, he's like, oh, you do not know the world. Let me tell you. <laughs> in which, Gotta to be fair, Rex. oh, yes. It's really great because, like, occasionally you'll complain about your problems. It goes, yeah, it kind of reminds me about how my race is dying. (laughs) By the way, fuck your problems. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Rex is fantastic. So they end up running into Rex, and it it turns out they they find out that um, there's a Quarian who recently arrived on the Citadel, claimed to have evidence of Saren's connection to the Geth, but she's been captured by a person named Fist who's a human, a local crime, crime ward. Mm. And Rex is like, well, good news, I need to murder this guy. <laughs> so they go to find Fist, and they murder Fist, and they find out where this Quarian is. And it turns out that Saren found out about this Quarian as well and tries to attack and kill her. Uh, they fail, Shepard and, and team get there, and they manage to rescue Tali Zora Naraya, also known as Ali. Man, it's really incredible that, like, your first two human teammates and party members are just so bleh. 
Yeah. And just so milk toast and forgettable and like get off my ship. And then mm-hmm. the next three are such complete winners. Right? It is <laughs> they're just so, so good. They're they are so good. They are so amazingly good. It it really makes me wonder, like, did they just like put all the writing effort into like the four alien races you get? Because we're gonna get one Maybe, more party yeah. member. And they're all four good in their own ways. Yeah. And then you have Caden, who's like, I'm just um, sad about things, man. I don't care, Caden. I don't care. No one cares. Oh, God. It's like, Caden, can you just go home? Why are you on the ship? The doctor is more interesting than you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Chocolate is great. Joker, your, uh, your ship's captain, who we'll talk more about in the second yeah. game. He's fantastic. David the, the Anderson. Pilot, the pilot is more interesting. The comms officer is more interesting. Oh, yeah. That's your right. I forget his name, but yeah, he's kind of cool, too. Yeah. Caden, <laughs> go. I don't think I ever used Caden. I used Ashley sometimes. I don't think I ever used Caden. When I played through Mass Effect 1, I made sure to use everybody, and that usually involved me having Garrus in my party and then mm-hmm. having somebody else tag along. Yeah, but, that's um, fair. But yeah, no, I, every subsequent playthrough has been like, well, humans stay on ship. Yep. Cool alien buddies, let's go have fun. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Tali. So Tali is a Quarian. Uh, Quarians are a species of essentially space Roma uh, who live on a basically just a flotilla of ships called the Migrant Fleet. Mm-hmm. The Quarians are the race that created the Geth. The Geth, once again, just to keep it simple, they're basically, you know, cy- um, cyclones and whatnot. And they are... Um, they were a machine race created to help out the Quarians, who by themselves are really dumb, but they can get together and network together to become very smart. This became a problem when he built a bunch of them, and then they began to like question their existence and why they're here, and they freaked out the Quarians, because they're like, hey, do we have a soul? And the Quarians <laughs> responded with, we need to shut them all off. Yep. And so the Geth were like, oh, well, we'll pick up these guns, I guess. Yeah. And they basically drove them off their home planet. They drove them off their home planet, and then the Geth just, like, sealed off the system and went, we're just going to be here for a while doing our thing. So the Quarians ended up becoming basically, yeah, once again, Space Roma. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Council themselves really hate the Quarians because they built the Geth. And basically, any time the Quarians had tried to settle another planet, the Council went, nuh-uh. Including one particularly bad time where they found a planet that was habitable for them. And then the Turians threatened to bomb them out of existence <laughs> if they didn't leave. Yeah. The council, uh, the council makes some questionable decisions in their history. They are constantly jerks and very short-sighted. It's, it's a very consistent theme for them. Yeah. Which I, I, I will say real quick, I really like that like Mass Effect sort of creates the council as this less than fantastic group of people who are they're they're sort of like in charge by virtue of being elders but literally that's it they've just been around so therefore they're in charge but at the same time like humanity also kind of sucks yeah every everybody sucks in like we're just sort of the latest set of jackasses on this stage of jackasses yeah and it's and yeah it's like you said like they're only in the positions of power because they got there first right like the Asari, to, get, to skip ahead, the Asari are the ones who discovered the Citadel. The Slarians came second. 
And so they are in power because they're there for so long. The Turians end up getting power because they're the military arm. So eventually, right. yes, sort of had to. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> and so, and that just leaves out everybody else. Like, there's the Volus are like the financial arm. Right. And they're ag- agitating to have a seat on the council. They're not getting it because everyone's like, oh, shut up. Shut Go up. away. Yeah. Do no you have one... guns? No? No? Oh, no, you have money. Sort of. But we, we have think... guns. Yeah, we could just take your money. But yeah, um, yeah. So it's good that they uh, they were kind of incompetent, but at the same time, their point man for humanity is, U- is Udina, right? Right. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Oof. Talk about oh. putting your best foot forward. Yeah. Just oh God, greasy man, greasy man. But um, so yeah, the Koreans, uh, so they've been doing this for the past three hundred years, traveling from system to system, and because of that, they've been living in a sterile environment, and now their immune systems are shot. Yep. So if they ever leave their home ship, they have to be fully clad in a spacesuit that looks very decorative and very rad. Yes. So Tally is a long line of Orients uh, who, when they reach a certain age, they go on a pilgrimage away from the migrant fleet where they find something of value and then break it back to another ship captain, not their own ship captain, so they can gain access to their ship and live among them. Uh, so they keep out genetic diversity and all that. Tally yeah, herself... Go ahead. Come to think of it, I really like the Quarians too. The Quarians are a very well balanced and well explained race. Yeah, yeah, I, I really, really do like them. Uh, Tally is very shy but very capable engineer. She impresses literally everybody around her for knowledge of engines and starships. And as she joins the crew and gets to know them, um, she becomes rather cheerful, albeit in a very muted, shy way. Like just like Garrus, Tally is one of my favorite characters. Yeah. So they end up saving Tally, and the Evans they have is an audio file where Saren is very, very clearly being like, boy, that Eden Prime attack was should have succeeded. <laughs> By the way, other very important person, Matriarch Benizia of the Asari. <laughs> we need to find a conduit so we can so we can really help bring about the return of the Reapers. So the council hears us and they go, all right, well, we're going to strip Saren of his status as a specter. Yeah. Uh, we're a little reluctant to send a fleet to apprehend him because he's probably in guest space. and We don't want to anger the geth. Well, right. We are going to make you, Shepard, a specter. And your task is going to go and get, get Saren back by any means necessary, unless it involves help from us. Yeah. Yeah, and we then, don't want to go into geth space, but you should do it. Yeah, you should do it. Hopefully you'll get murdered, because we kind of don't like your species. They also kind of bring up, it's like, well, what about these Reapers? And they're like, ah, they're probably not real. They're, they're yes. probably a techno-god or something. I don't know. Anyways, so Shepard becomes the first human specter. Uh, Captain Anderson, at this point, decides to step down as the commander of the Normandy in order to hand the ship over to Shepard, because the Normandy being state-of-the-art, having stealth systems and all this, would obviously be useful to Shepard. Mm-hmm. And so the Shepard, now in command of the ship, she ends up getting a few leads on Geth activity on various planets, but she's told she probably should go and track down Dr. Liard Tassoni, who's a Prothean expert and the daughter of Matriarch Benizia. Because one, probably good to get into her mindset, and two, being a Prothean expert, she might give you some idea of what the conduit is. So Garrus and Rex are like, hey, yeah, we'll go along with you, why not? And of course the rest of the crew is totally on board with this. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, actually, in a, 
in a fun way, uh, I think you can actually like welcome. You can actually refuse them if you want to. <laughs> right, right. Which why would you do that? I don't know, but options, choice. Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of cool that you could do that, but, uh, but yeah, like you know, Shepard gives a huge speech, and they go and go to track down people. So the first mission they end up going on, you can technically go on anywhere else, but. Uh, for our purposes, just so we can get this out of the way, you end up going to Therum, which is a mining colony uh, that has it's mostly de- like deserted except for some geth and one particular archaeologist by the name of Liar Tsasoni. So the geth have already occupied the surface, and Liar is like kind of trapped herself in like an energy barrier. So they have to like go in there and fight through a bunch of people, and like they actually fight like a Krogan battlemaster like a very big deal Krogan guy, which mm-hmm. kind of raises some questions like, are the Krogan working with the Geth or like what's going on with that? Right. And they end up like running into Liara. So we end up learning a little bit more about our newest squad mate, Liara to Sony. So Liara is a Asari. Asari are the, a stereotype that appears at all sci-fi of the sexy, either blue skinned or green skinned, uh, alien race, mm-hmm. usually the one where Captain Kirk can mac on or whatever. Right. Asari are a uh, a monogendered race. Uh, while they technically don't have a male or female, they all are coded as female. They use female uh, terms and pronouns, and they all look female. You know, they mm-hmm. uh, their anatomy is essentially very similar. They are a very, very, very long living race. Liar herself is considered incredibly young, essentially like an 18-year-old, but she's 106. Right. They, since they live like more than a thousand years, they have a very long view of life, and they tend to take things incredibly slow when it comes to politics or technological advancement. They were the first to discover the Citadel and thus have a very important, strong importance in galactic society and are theoretically the most powerful military force by themselves. Um, although they don't tend to have a whole lot of fighters in general. Uh, there's a good line in one of the codex that um, uh, I, for, I forget what the name of like the, the badass Asari special forces are, but the line from Aturian is that the Asari are the most powerful fighters in the universe. Thankfully, there aren't a whole lot of them. <laughs> and so because of the fact that they have like a really long view of, of life and whatnot, they tend to sort of, and they inter- interact with a lot of species who don't live very long. They tend to, like, enjoy things in the moment a lot as well. So the Asari reproduce um, by a way where they meld with another person in a very Vulcan-like way. Uh, that mm. apparently just sort of scrambles their DNA, and then they sort of have kids that way. Right. Uh, to Asari, having children together is considered kind of a no-no. Um, it's kind of looked, it's looked down upon. Liara herself is actually, both her parents are Asari. And so she's kind of looked down on a little bit because of that, despite the fact mm-hmm. that she's the daughter of an incredibly important member of the Asari hierarchy. But also because of that, the Asari tend to seek out other species as potential mates. Uh, right. Particularly the Krogan, because the Krogan are also very long-living. So that's sort of their deal. They tend to play a very diplomatic role, and usually their decisions are like, we should maybe wait and see what happens. You're jumping to conclusions, Shepard. I'm sure that person had a reason to shoot at you. <laughs> so, Liar herself decided to become an archaeologist because she's just very interested in Protheans. She wants to learn where they come from, and she also just 
doesn't want to be under the shadow of Menesia at all. Right. So she figures this is a good way to get away from all that. She herself is a bit sheltered and naive at first, kind of like so much like a 20-year-old student in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, but much like the other crew members, she uh, ends up you know, kind of growing on everybody else and opens up a little bit as the game goes on. So they discover her trapped in his energy field and manage to free her. Uh, as a fun aside, if you come to this planet last, she thinks you're like a complete hallucination. <laughs> she's literally been there for like weeks, which is pretty, pretty great. But they manage to like free her and um, the mind starts to collapse. They have to escape. And uh, once they do, they end up getting onto the ship uh, back on the Normandy and fly away. And like Liara explains uh, that she really doesn't know what this conduit is. Uh, she does have the theory that the Protheans weren't the first species to just mysteriously vanish. Because she's like, well, there had to be something that came before the Protheans. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make sense that they mysteriously vanished. So this, I wonder if there's like a cycle going on or something like that. She's also very amazed by Shepard's story, the Reapers. And because of that, she's like, I want to join your crew. I want to know what the heck is going on with this. Right. So as a fun aside, after all these missions, you usually have to talk to the council afterwards. Uh, where oh, they yeah. basically tell you, ask you like how you did. <laughs> and it's usually them being very disappointed in you. Right. Um, there's not really a whole lot of decisions you can make here that will affect how they respond to you, if I remember correctly. But essentially they go, oh, you let that mind collapse. Boy, you idiot. There might have been a lot of protein <laughs> artifacts in there. <laughs> What's really fun is that you can actually just hang up on them at any time. Mm. Oh, yeah. Which, if you do that enough times, they, they actually go, like, don't you dare hang up on us again. And you can hang up on them. <laughs> go, I'm sorry, I guess it's breaking up. Uh, oh, that is so really good. fun. See, that's one of those things where, like, that's one of the really good uses of the illusion of choice. Where mm-hmm. it's like, nothing about those scenes or the way you deal with them is going to impact the story in the long run. Mm-hmm. But it it is it creates this just a fun dynamic, and it's a good character moment. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. It, it's really, really good, and it's it's really well done to like establish like this the tone of what the council is and how your relations are with them, or how they can be. Like it's always mm-hmm. going to be antagonistic, but how are you going to deal with it? Right. Especially knowing that there's going to be no consequence because you're the only one who can do this. Right. Yeah. What are they going to do? Fire you? Hmm. You yes. have the stealth ship. Yeah. I have the stealth ship, and I'm the only one who can stop Saren. <laughs> yep. So after all this, they just traveled to an ice planet bo- called Neveria. Uh, it has, um, basically, it's, war- it's like a corporate planet for this corporation called Binary Helix, where they are doing com- some kind of weird experiments up there. We learned that Matriarch Benizia has gone on business there recently, so we figured there's probably something going on there. So after like dealing with like some administrators there and whatnot, getting uh, getting permission to take a look at their facilities, um, uh, we learned that first off, the lab has been sort of cut off. They've issued a code Omega signal, which is "Oh God, things are bad. Everyone's dying." <laughs> so Shepard goes to check it out. So upon arriving there, we find out that the Rachni are not extinct. Turns out there was a ship just sort of floating around, and Binary Helix found it, mm. and so they got a bunch of eggs, and they were like. What if we could make these into weapons? <laughs> so one of those Rachni eggs was a was a queen. They had a queen, and they're breeding an army, and then the Rachni eventually turned on them. So 
this is a really interesting plot line when you think about how the Rachni are technically sentient. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, there was that whole war, and they look like crazy bug alien monsters. Yeah. But all that was sort of just a misunderstanding, and this is actually a sentient race, but someone was still like, yeah, what if we just weaponize the sentient race? Yeah, what if we just... It's a really common theme in Mass Effect of, what if we gave this race guns? Yeah. And just had them do their thing. Like, there's a real strong, like, you know colonialism sort of mm-hmm. vibe that goes out throughout these games right like a very british empire of like well, what if we give these people guns and have them oppress these other people we don't like right yeah because like it's it constantly constantly happens so we discover that yeah they're you know have this rachne queen and they're reading like crazy and they're not really sure why exactly just all of a sudden went crazy they apparently were relatively docile mm-hmm but Shepard does manage to run into Matriarch Venezia. And, like, you know, she's, like, talking about how the Reaper is going to be coming back and whatnot. And, like, if Liara is with you, she's like, why did you, like, become crazy like this? I'm going to stop you. And Venezia um, manages to, like, attack them with a, with a bunch of Asari special forces. But, you know, Shepard, being the badass soldier she is, manages to stop her and mortally wounds her. It's during this time, though, that... The matriarch comes to her senses, and we realize that she's been under mind control. And we realize that, oh, wait, that's also the reason why the Rachni were going crazy. They were also under some sort of mind control. Mm. And this is where we learn about the concept of indoctrination, where for one reason or another, Saren has the ability to control the minds of other people. Not exactly sure how he's doing this. The, it's suspected it's a Prothean artifact that's causing this. But Menesia comes to her senses, goes, Hey, Saren is trying to locate the lost Moo relay. Uh, she wanted, he wanted to get it from the Queen's genetic memory. And there's just weird things going on with this. You need to stop him. Liara, sorry about all this. I'm going to die now. Right. So we learned that Saren now has an incredibly potent weapon. And we also, now that this is all done, the Rachne Queen is now back to her senses. And now we have a decision to make. Do we murder the Rachne Queen or do we let it go free? Mm. And the Rachne Queen's like, hey, listen, I just want my children to sing and be wonderful. They were only going crazy because they couldn't hear my voice. Uh, but now they can. We have no qualms. We never had any qualms with you. Y'all attacked first. Right. We just want to go away and live in peace. And depending on who you have with you, you know, they'll either be like, you need to murder the bugs or not. Um, Ashley is very pro-murder bug, for instance. <laughs> Caden's like, I'm not really sure, but maybe the bugs should live. I'm not going to commit. <laughs> God, Caden. Caden sucks. Um, For my playthrough, I let the Rachne Queen live. So we're just going to go with that. Okay. So that ends up occurring. Um, and then like the post-briefing... No matter what decision you make, by the way, the Turian council member, like, just rips into you. He's like, right. Huh. So you let the Rachne go free. You know, we honestly fought against him. I hope this doesn't come back to bite us and we're ex- exterminated from the galaxy. Or if you decide to kill the Rachne, oh, I guess humanity just likes murdering races. <laughs> just like causing extinctions all over the place, which is like, dude, you, you literally did that to the Krogan, and then got Krogan to do that to the Rack. Oh, also you... us a little bit. Also us a little bit, yes. <laughs> you people suck. 
So after that, they end up going to another planet by the name name of Pharos, which is kind of the more throwaway of the planets. Um, yeah. It basically it's a human colony that um, more or less uh, has these creatures called the Thorians, who were plants that could uh, that this corporation were like extracting this essence from to help mind control people. But uh, then the Thorians kind of went a little bit too crazy and started like just basically turning people into like weird thralls and whatnot and being able to create clones and really bad things happened. Right. Uh, the, the point is, is that they end up fighting through all this. They end up uh, destroying like the big bad Thorian and uh, they end up getting another piece of, um, of a puzzle that allows them to find out where Saren is. And they find out that Saren is on this planet called Vermeer. So, the council also figures this out, and they contact Shepard and tell them that, hey, a Salarian espionage team, uh, the uh, Salarian Special Tactics and Services, I believe they're called, the STS, mm-hmm. they have discovered that, okay, yeah, no, Saren is definitely on Vermeer, and they are doing something crazy. And so they have a team that's going there right now, and you should go there as well. So Shepard goes down there, and they meet the um, the leader of these Salarians, uh, Captain Curie, who is fantastic. Mm. And um, they find out that it's a breeding facility for the Krogan has been set up there for Saren, and apparently Saren has figured out how to overcome the genophage. So Kyrie is like, hey, are you, any other reinforcements coming? And Shepard's like, nah, just me. And he's like, well, mm-hmm. that's okay. Just like you, I'm kind of a badass, so <laughs> we're going to make this happen. So the idea is that they're going to go and plant a nuclear device that's going to blow up the facility, Shepard's going to help uh, coordinate the attack. He's like, hey, can you send one of our members with us? And um, preferably one of your one of your two human members, because... No reason. No real reason. And so you can choose to send either Ashley or Caden along to help with the Solarians. So if Rex is with the team, uh, he is all of a sudden, like, angry. He, he just goes out to the middle of the ocean, like, like he's, they're on, you're on a beach, and he goes out to, like, the middle of the water and just starts shooting the ocean. Mm-hmm. And he's like, wow, you know, this is, he found a way. He found a way to help my race come back from the brink. And right. now we're going to go blow it up. And you're like, yeah, but, you know, we don't know if he's actually succeeded or, like, what's going on? You know, this might be a lie. And he's like, I can't take that chance. And he po- he points a gun at Shepard. Mm-hmm. And so you're now in, like, a bit of a Mexican standoff with him. Right. And this is where, if you have, like, enough Paragon or Renegade points, you could talk him down. Uh, if you don't have enough, you can still talk him down another method that's very unsatisfying. Uh-huh. But if you don't manage to talk him down, then uh, Ashley will actually shoot and kill him. Yeah. Uh, which then you can get very pissed at Ashley for. And she's like, man, whatever, he's <laughs> just an alien, who cares? Uh, but for the purposes of this, Rex stays loyal. You manage, to, you manage to convince him that, no, this is not the way. There's another way to figure this out. Right. So, I think this is worth ba- going back to the illusion of choice, because yeah. in my opinion, this is a really good scene. This scene is, is really well done. It is a great scene. It's very tense. Um, it's also, one of, again, one of the places that the illusion of choice is done well, but this is almost one of the points where it's not an illusion anymore. Mm. It like, there, yeah. there is a genuine consequence that comes out of the scene, which is Rex might be dead. And so the upside of this is that there is there is a genuine weight to this scene and things that can come out of it. 
But one of the downsides of that is, okay, everything moving forward in the whole series has to account for the fact that Rex might be dead now. Yeah, totally. And that, that comes back to the problem of like, okay, now you had to generate assets and voice lines and all these other things in order to account for this. Because Rex is going to show up in very prominent roles in 2 and 3. Right. So now you have to have a replacement for that. And what's going to be the replacement? Unless you just get rid of those wholesale. Right. Which they choose not to, which means they have to do this. Yeah. So yeah, it's that's... it's one of those points where they sort of moved past the illusion of choice. Mm-hmm. And sort of made things more complicated in doing so. Yeah, totally. And this is a very exciting thing they did. Vermeer is a planet that's full of these decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, it has like two of these decisions, but still. Right. <laughs> Relatively speaking, that's pretty chock full. Yeah, that compared to other games, yeah, that's that's a two hundred percent increase. Yep. So yeah, uh, yeah. Once again, for our purposes, Rex survives because it's just it's it's a little bit more satisfying. Uh, yeah. So they go into the facility, and you know they find out its main purpose though is actually not to breed Krogan. Like they're doing that as a side project, and it turns out they haven't succeeded. Mm-hmm. But it's actually they are studying the indoctrination effect, and so they're like, "Oh wait, so Saren doesn't actually understand this, right?" And like they run into another Prothean beacon, and Shepard gets another vision about the coming horror from the Reapers, and then we are confronted by a hologram of a creature by the name of Sovereign, which we find out is not a... So, like, we've been chasing around this gi- the giant ship that w- was on Eden Prime, right? Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, that's a, that must be a Reaper ship, and Saren must have found a way to control it. We find out that that's not true. That mm-hmm. ship... That is not a Reaper ship. That is a Reaper. Mm-hmm. And Sovereign is that Reaper. <laughs> so Sovereign, in a very gravelly techno voice... Reveals that the mass relays in the Citadel were not built by the Protheans. Like, they always mm-hmm. thought that the Protheans were what, who built all those and just sort of left them, but the Reapers right. were the ones who built them themselves. And we find out the reason is because they want organic life to develop along very similar lines. They want them to discover the Citadel. They want them to have that be the center of galactic society so that they can then show up and murder the hell out of them. <laughs> And then from there, spread out and murder everybody else. Because since they built all the relays, they know exactly where they're all going. Right. So Shepard is like, wait, why are you doing this? And Sovereign is like, this is beyond your understanding because we haven't written it yet. So, so like, you don't know why they're doing it. They're just saying, we do this because this is what we do and we are going to do it again. Right. And so that raises the question, though, is like, well, why haven't they? So we don't find that out because we had to get that nuke set up and blow things up. Right. I do really like this reveal because <laughs> it's like, first of all, okay, Saren's still bad news, but he's not the top dog in this scheme. No. And like a lot of times when that happens, the top dog ends up being really lame and boring and you don't <laughs> care. Like it sets up this really interesting bad guy who ends up being the lieutenant and yeah. that bad guy's really good. But then the person in charge is like, oh, you're honestly kind of a step down. Yeah. Like, it's, far, far Cry falls into this trap a lot. Far Cry falls in this. Final Fantasy falls in this trap all yeah, the time. Yeah, boy, it does. Yeah. But, it, but this is like, uh, no, actually the big bad is like a life-ending race of 
sentient super destroyer spaceships. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're like, oh, that's 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 a pretty good one. It's an interesting concept. You're introduced to him early enough. You interact mm. with him very directly. Yeah. And he he treats you with such disdain that he's yeah. like that you are you don't need to have like an elaborate backstory set up. He's like, I don't need to explain this to you. This yeah. is just gonna happen. This is how it's always happened. Why do I need to explain this to a bunch of a bunch of people who are gonna be very dead very yeah. soon? Also, you're like an insect to me, so like, no, go away. Exactly. Exactly. And yes, sovereign's good. Also, my body is the biggest spaceship you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I'm a big giant spaceship that looks like a cuttlefish. It's great. And you're like, all right, well, I want to blow you up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, the Reaper ships, or the Reapers themselves, have such a great design. I love yeah, them. Yeah, they really do. So Shepard's like, okay, well, we still got to blow up this facility. Right. They get the nuke set, and they get a call from the Solarians who are being attacked with heavy losses. So the guests start to attack the nuke site, and Shepard has to choose— Caden's in trouble. Like, either Caden and Ashley are in trouble. Either they're in trouble because one has to guard the nuke site, or one's mm-hmm. in trouble because they're with the Solarians. And you have to choose who are you going to save. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I posted on Twitter rather facetiously that with the Mass Effect Legendary Edition, a new generation players are going to have to make the hard choice of whether or not to save the dipshit or the space racist. <laughs> and, um,. Alex, what decision did you make? I saved Ashley. I don't remember which that ended up being, whether whether I sent her with the captain or put her at the site. Hmm. But I remember but, I saved Ashley. Hmm. I saved Caden, which okay. I regret. Yeah. I, I plan on playing back through Mass Effect uh, at some point when I have, after, after events in life are done dealt with. Sure. And um, I probably am going to save Ashley because, boy, I saved Caden. And, oh, God, there's a real good scene in two where you're like, I made some mistakes. Yeah. Uh, Ashley doesn't really do much in two. She's got a good scene or two in three. I'll mm-hmm. say that much. Yeah, so. everything I've heard about Ashley is that she, like, really redeems herself by the end. Yeah, I, I'd say that's accurate, yeah. Whereas Caden does not. Caden mm. <laughs> does not. <laughs> Very unfortunate. So, thanks to all all this, Shepard's Prothean vision is complete. Shepard realizes the Reaper's going to be coming back, and they're going to ruin all Sapien life's day, basically. And, uh, like, Liar, like, melds with Shepard's mind to interpret it fully, and they realize that the vision was a distress call intended to warn the Protheans about the Reapers. So they realize, oh, wait, these beacons aren't Prothean beacons. It's from a species even further before. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they're like, okay, that's rough. So Liar realizes the landmarks in her vision are another planet called Ilos, a planet that she studied as part of her Prothean research. But Ilos is nearly impossible to reach because it's only accessible through the Moo relay, which is why Sarah needed like the relay's location for Novaria. So they have all this. Uh, and to get a message from the council, the council's like, hey, okay, listen, yeah, we need to do, deal with this. We've, we're going to have a multi-species effort to do this. We're getting our military forces together. And Shepard's like, all right, great. I'm going to go back to the Citadel. We're going to talk about this. We're going to lead the assault personally. And they get back, and the council's like, oh, now we're just going to put a blockade around the mass reflays. <laughs> also, you're not allowed to leave. 
All so you're not in command of your ship anymore. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, don't worry. The big boys are going to handle this now. Great. So Shepard's like, well, if we only had a stealth ship that we could use to just sneak into the Mu Relay, we could possibly, we could make this happen. And then she's like, what if we just steal the Normandy? Yeah. So they steal the Normandy, which Captain Anderson helps them with. Like, right. Anderson helps them steal the Normandy and they immediately go to Isla's. Like Anderson's like rested and whatnot. But like Anderson's like, listen, don't worry about me. Mm-hmm. Stopping genocide on the galactic scale is probably for the best. <laughs> probably. Because Anderson's the best. Anderson is the best. So around this time, uh, depending on who you romance, this is where you have your big sex scene and whatnot. Um, and, uh, for Which is the, how you know you're entering Act 3 of a Bioware game. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, for those of you who are wondering who uh, the romance options are in this game, if you're a male shepherd, it's Ashley. If you're a female shepherd, it's Caden, which that's a choice. And... <laughs> Either or can also have Liara. That's great. That's that's great. Yeah. Uh, I went with Liara because I played female Shepherd and I went, not Caden. <laughs> I also went with Liara because I played male Shepherd and I went, not Ashley. Yeah, it's like, well, <laughs> I feel like at least in Mass Effect 2, you get a lot more options. <laughs> yeah, you do. Uh, Mass Effect 1, it's sort of Liara winner by default either way. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So they go through the Moo Relay, and they see that Saren's already arrived there with a fleet of guest, guest ships and whatnot, and uh, they confirm Saren's presence there, and they decide that um, they need to just, like, jump down there, land their cool, like, you know, APC, the Mako there. Or I think it's called the Mako in this one. I don't think... Oh, yeah, do. we haven't talked about the Mako yet, have we? We have not. I, I, it's like, the Mako is basically an uncontrollable hell beast of a thing. <laughs> It's so bad. It's so it feels bad. so terrible to drive that thing. I love the Mako so much. It's the worst. The Mako has the um the same buoyancy as a as a dodgeball. <laughs> where it basically if it touches anything, it just bounces in random directions. And use the 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 Mako to like explore different planets. Like a really cool thing that makes Mass Effect feel very open is that you can go to random systems that have no meaning. Yes. And you can land on random planets. Yes. And admittedly, there's usually nothing a whole lot to them, but it's still no. super cool. It's super. So it is. It is extremely superficial. Uh, there is nothing mechanically much to do. Uh, the Mako is a nightmare to control. It it has a jump button, which mm -hmm. basically hurls it into the air in a completely uncontrolled <laughs> arc, flipping end over end. <laughs> Uh, it's weaponry. It just adds to the problems, yeah. really. Um, it is completely throwaway and not that much fun. And it is the number one thing I wish had come back in later Mass Effect games. Because <laughs> I, I feel like it just adds to the immersion of the game so much, being able to just drive around on these planets. It does. It makes it feel like a galaxy. It does. It really, and it, really does. It, it basically got replaced by probe scanning from orbit in two and three mm -hmm. and i wish it had come back yeah totally totally it kind of did but only in very limited senses yeah i i think andromeda tried to have its eight cake it needed two from what i understand i've Probably. never played it andromeda but i didn't either yeah i i, I plan on to Ugh. um but uh yeah 
Yeah, it, it's really cool. And once again, like the plants you land on usually are very barren. Uh, yeah. Even the ones that supposedly have plant life. Mm-hmm. Although there's one where you can run over a bunch of monkeys, and that's pretty good. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, yeah they're, they're usually just square sandboxes. You drive around and shoot giant worms. And they took the noise filter, like the noise um, train generator, and just kind of put it over there. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because <laughs> some of the some of those like like you can drive like the 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 Mako up like like really steep slopes. But, like, oh some yeah, of them, it's real like, steep. Like you can literally like land in valleys where you're just wedged in. You're like, how am I supposed to get out of this? <laughs> Uh, yeah but yeah so they had to drop them they're gonna like basically do it to where like joker who's an expert pilot um we'll talk more about joker in two joker's a lot yeah. more important there uh and they're just gonna just drop the mako basically onto a very small patch of land and hope for the best <laughs> but thankfully for shepherd and team joker is really good yeah. and they managed to do that and so they fight their way uh through to the Isla's ruins. And eventually, they end up getting to a control room where they discover an ancient Prothean recording. Uh, they find out that it's another warning about the Reapers that's, like, a little bit too broken up, but they figure out eventually what it is because they drive past a bunch of, like, cryogenic stasis pods that are all been shut down, and they run into a Prothean uh, virtual interface by the name of Vigil. Vigil basically tells them what's been going on. He tells them that the Citadel is actually a trap. It's a huge mm-hmm. mass relay itself that links to dark space, the space outside of the galaxy, where the Reapers are just sort of hanging out. So these are little bug creatures that people are like don't understand what their deal is on the Citadel. They're called the Keepers, who basically repair everything and are uninteractable with. Like if you kill them, like just another shows up out of nowhere, and they like help keep the Citadel clean. And they're like, okay, well, what's up their deal? Well, their deal is that when the Reapers are ready to come back, they send a signal to the Keepers, and the Keepers go, all right. They turn on the Citadel's warp in all the deadly space creatures button uh, <laughs> function, and then all the Reapers show up. And then that's how they, deca- they immediately decapitate the head government, and then they fan out to eliminate everything else. So basically the Protheans put themselves in suspended animation in Ilos, and... Until, like, all the Reapers went back to dark space. And then they had to shut down each pod one by one to conserve power because it took a very long time for the Reapers to do their thing. So by the time they come out, there's only a few of them left, not enough to repopulate uh, the Prothean race. So instead, what they decide to do is that if they can't, if they can't come back, they're going to screw over the Reapers instead. They discover a way using the conduit, which is on Ilos, in order to get into the Citadel, which they managed to succeed to do that. And then they alter the keepers so that they cannot receive the signal. And so once they do that, their plan is done. And after that, because there's no food on the Citadel anymore, uh, they all eventually just die. So it turns out Reaper attacks happen roughly about every 50,000 years, and it's about 50,000 years since the, this last happened. So, yay. Uh, so they basically, the Reaper sent out the signal, figured out, oh, wait, this isn't working. And so through one means or another, they managed to get in contact with Saren. They indoctrinated Saren, and then Saren, in turn, began indoctrinating everybody else. And then the idea being in order to reactivate the Citadel and have this galactic cycle continue again. Mm-hmm. So 
Vigil explains that if Sovereign assaults the Citadel alone as well, that the Citadel fleet probably could stop a single Reaper, but if there's anything more than that, they're basically all doomed. Right. So Vigil gives Shepard a data file that will give like the commander like temporary control of the Citadel to stop Sovereign, just in case he does happen to activate it. And so because of that, Sovereign like begins its assault on the Citadel. Like Sovereign's like the one Reaper who's still hanging out in the galaxy. Well, obviously, I guess. Mm-hmm. And like he is escorted by a large Geth fleet, and they just attack uh, the um, the Citadel. So Shepard realizes they she needs to get on there. So using the Mako, they basically drive at the conduit, which is about to close down, and they basically hop into it. And by doing that, they are relayed now into a very worn, torn Citadel. So they realize that, oh, no, there's, like, a blue glow around this, like, monument that's in the center of uh, the Citadel, and they realize that's the relay, and they mm-hmm. need to go and f- find Starin and put a stop to him. So during this time, like, the, the Citadel fleet is getting absolutely blown apart. Like, the council is evacuating onto the biggest uh, Asari ship that's there, and, like, they're like, hey, we need help from the humans, otherwise we're all going to get murdered, and that's going to be really bad. <laughs> and you have a big decision to make. It's like, oh, do you send the human fleet in where there's going to be heavy losses? Or do you just keep them, keep them back and just kind of, kind of let those jerks die? <laughs> this decision has somewhat big ramifications. Not as big as you think that would be. Yeah, it, but, uh, it, it, this is definitely an illusion of choice. This definitely is, but um, pretty tec- good illusion, all in all. Pretty good, and technically, it's actually three choices you could make here. But um, mm. for our purposes, let's just say that the human fleet decides to save the council. They go in and they just beat the hell out of Sovereign. So, you know, Sovereign, like, can't really do a whole lot because he has to sit on the Citadel Tower to activate the relay. So he's just getting bombarded. And, like, Shepard are, like, fighting through all the Geth and Krogan warriors and all those other things. And eventually they get to the Council Chambers and they, f- and they meet up with Saren. So Saren and Shepard start talking. And, like... Saren's like, no, I'm in complete control. I these implants mm-hmm. I have, which turns out are Reaper implants, you know. I'm gonna tell okay. you this. What go ahead? So that that's the thing right there I gotta circle back to. So those are Reaper implants? Yes. So no one ever asked about those? Yeah, I guess he just kind of came back one day with a bunch of implants and he went, and he was like, Yeah, got to a fight, man, but you should see the other guy. Ha ha ha. He was a human, I killed him. Like, cause uh, like the whole game, I was assuming like, okay, these must be cybernetic implants he got over the course of duty from someone, mm-hmm. and then he's like, these are Reaper implants. I'm like, wait, okay, so no one ever like attested to installing those in you, like no one ever those those couldn't be traced back anywhere. Did yeah. anyone ask when you showed up with a face full of Reaper tech? My my interpretation is that he's probably has already had some cybernetic implants and he just got additional Reaper stuff and then he went, ah, oh, look at that, Saren. He's he's more glowy than usual. Hmm. But yeah, you, you'd figure somebody would question that after a while, right? Because they aren't hidden. Nope. They're not covert. Not like the in the least. First thing you see of Saren, his eyes and mouth are glowing purple. Yes, they are. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> Were we not supposed to notice that or what? <laughs> I guess not. I guess not. And then, to be fair, I barely noticed it when I first played. Yeah, fair. 
But yeah, like, so Shepard, like, starts trying to talk down Saren, and you can choose to attack him right away. The, there's mm-hmm. not really big, like, decision tree to make here, but... Right. But as you talk to Saren, and as he gets more convinced, like, the Reaper implants start causing him pain, and he realizes, oh, no, yeah, I have been thoroughly indoctrinated. And so eventually, you can convince him, and he thanks the commander, and he just shoots himself in the head. Mm-hmm. And it's a hell of a scene. It really is. Like, he falls through the glass below... And then, like, you go down there with your team. You're like, all right. And in a very smart move, Shepard's like, all right, put some more bullets in him. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And I'm like, job done. All right, let's get up to that console and turn off the the relay. But it turns out uh, Saren's not actually done. Yeah. The Reaper implants basically cause his skin to burn away. And he's, like, now a weird... A Turian skeleton Cyberman, and who's hopping around and doing all sorts of crazy stuff, and like immediately starts attacking mm-hmm. in a really fun boss fight. Yeah, Shepard manages to defeat him, like destroys him, and he like basically blows up essentially. And Shepard gets up uh, to the um, central console. He uploads vitriol. She uploads vitriol's program and gains control of the Citadel. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, and this is actually where you make the decision to send the fleet in. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was earlier, but no, it's not. So, basically, Shepard shuts down the uh, the relay. The fleet goes in. Heavy losses happen, but they do blow up Sovereign. And, like, Sovereign's, like, basically body just flies, like, pieces of it fly down onto the, onto the Citadel, causing a ton of damage. But um, this ends up, uh, this ends up uh, stopping, uh, stopping the Sovereign, and Sovereign mm-hmm. is now dead. Even though, and even though there's heavy losses and whatnot, because the fact that the humanity decided to fight with them, the uh, council decides, hey, you know what? You're going to get a seat on the council now. Mm-hmm. You should choose who's on the council. And you can choose between either Udina or Anderson. This is not a choice. It is not a choice. You always <laughs> pick Anderson. You pick Keith David. Yep. Which <laughs> Udina is a little upset about, but whatever. So, like, okay, this would have been a choice if Udina seemed like a competent diplomat. Hmm. Like, he could have been an asshole who was good at his job, and you would have been like, okay, clearly we like Anderson better. But Anderson's, you know, career military. He's yeah. not a politician. He's not a diplomat. He's yeah, not he an points ambassador. that out, too, yeah. Yeah, it's like... Okay, Udina might be the smarter choice, even if you don't like him. But no, Udina is also just a terrible choice. He's just he's just a terrible person, and you're like, I don't want you in charge of anything. No, like you will not be helpful to have around. So mm-hmm. Keith David, a hundred percent. Keith David, a hundred percent. Keith David is also just a better diplomat than you. Mm-hmm. Because people like him. Yeah, people actually get along with him. So yeah, that so that was the decision I made. Now there are other endings, right? So right. So the Alliance fleet can save the council and whatnot. Um, and so basically, uh, if you happen to be like more uh, renegade and whatnot, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, they decide, like okay, they still decide like to you know, bring on like another human to the council and whatnot. But um, but they're also like, man, you you could definitely replace Saren, ominous. <laughs> uh, 
And of course, if you let the council be destroyed, you can either, the council will end up being reformed with a human chairman, but like other races will remain on the council if you could take the Paragon ending. So you can have a different set of of, uh, aliens who will be very upset with you the next game. (laughs) Or you can just decide, nope, humanity's just in charge now. (laughs) Yep. Which, um, needless to say, if you do that, the rest of the the rest of the species are not happy about that one. Right. But yeah, regardless of what ending you choose, Shepard leaves the Citadel aboard the Normandy because this has not stopped the Reapers. They are going to try to find a way to come back, and so Shepard needs to figure out a way in order to stop them. And we'll learn exactly how Shepard's going to go about that next time when we talk about Mass Effect Two and Three. Alex, how are you feeling right now? I feel great. Like I mentioned before, Mass Effect 1 is one of my favorite games ever. It is. And sort of going through this, you can see why. And I think the ending of this game, foreshadowing, is a fantastic encapsulation of why. Because Mm -hmm. Mass Effect 1 is an excellent part one in a trilogy. Yeah. It is, it sets up a lot it sets up everything that it needs to for the rest of the games that come after but it is still a self-contained adventure and story it has yes. its own villains who you deal with by the end of it it has its own stakes that mm-hmm. you have to confront in the climax it has its own arc for its characters for its main character its side characters its you know antagonist and it, it, it is the fight on the Citadel, despite the fact that it is only the first line of defense against the Reapers, feels like this really desperate, meaningful struggle against the coming fire. Yeah. Oh, it totally and, does. It's like, if you we, fail here, it, it it's over. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we are not prepared. The Reapers will show up and it'll be over. Mm-hmm. And so even though it is not... You're not fighting all of the Reapers, but you are fighting for your only chance and you, you win and it feels extremely satisfying. It feels like you accomplish something. Um, there is, there is a sort of, you know, the Bioware games with these multiple branching paths and branching choices and all this have the sort of formula of basically escalating choices. Yes. Where you, you'll make a few key choices along the way, and then peppered between those is a lot of smaller choices, and then at the end you'll make a big choice. Yeah. And deal how you deal with the council is that big choice for Mass Effect 1. Mm-hmm. And taking a step back and looking at it from a game design perspective, you can see how all the choices you make all sort of lead to the same starting point for the next game. Mm-hmm. But it still feels extremely impactful and extremely satisfying, and it feels like it's all building on top of everything you've done and the person you've made Shepard out to be. Yeah, totally. It Yeah, going back to that, um, that chart like I showed you, right? Like, mm-hmm. you still end up converging on the one point eventually. Right. But at, along the way, there are... There are still there are still little fraying pieces that are going out everywhere, right? Right. Like Rex is Rex is alive or dead, right? Mm-hmm. Hayden's alive or dead. What are the implications from that? Because there's going to be implications, right? You know, oh, the Rachne Queen. What happened with that? Uh, there's uh, decisions you can make on Pharos that I didn't go into because they're not that important. But like, mm-hmm. 
you know, what's going to what's gonna happen there? And then, of course, there's just all the different side quests that I haven't even talked about. Like, I didn't touch on, like, the Cerberus side quests or anything right. like that. Um, that also will have implications in the next game, big and small. Mm-hmm. Like, it sets up this possibility where when you've played this first game, uh, it's like, okay, they say that this is all going to matter. Right. And it feels like it does go, it is going to matter. Yeah. It's super exciting to see where this goes. Even if they did ultimately get back to that singular point, the fact of the matter is, I feel like my playthrough when I start Mass Effect 2 is going to be different compared to if I did that playthrough differently in right. the first game. Yeah. So yeah, I think Mass Effect 1 is very much the right way to do a game like this. Yes. And it, it they did all the heavy work, right? They did the yep. heavy work of establishing that universe and making you care. And... Yeah, so we didn't we we didn't really even talk about this, but when after you leave Eden Prime and you get to the Citadel and you go talk to the council mm-hmm. and then you get through that meeting and basically you you come back with Anderson and Anderson says, This is what's going on, this is what you should do. And then he sort of just cuts you loose. Yeah. And you're just on the citadel. Mm-hmm. And, and that whole segment sets up for just walk around and talk to people and figure out what is going on in this universe Mm -hmm. and yeah and like the citadel is such a fantastically huge and pristine place like excellent my god is it beautiful and yeah you meet like not only a bunch of other humans but you meet all these other races like i haven't talked about uh the the hanar or my or my personal Mm -hmm. favorite the elcor yes uh, like you meet all these other different races, and you get the backstories to them. Like you talk to yeah. bulls, and like learn what their deal is, and like you know, the, learn a little bit about the Batarians, who are absolutely unimportant, even though they try to make them important. They try real hard to make them, and they're like, "No, shut no, up with the Batarians. No one cares." They are they are Star Trek: The Next Generation Ferengi, where it's like, yep. there's going to be one season where they're going to be the big bad, and then they realize, mm-hmm. uh, actually, uh, no. no, no one cares. Yeah. I, I guess I should reference there is a DLC to this game called Bring Down the Sky where you deal with the mm-hmm. Batarians uh, and them trying to crash, I think, an asteroid into a planet, into a human yeah. colony. It's unimportant. Yes. No that's, No one cares. Yeah, that, that's the answer to that. There are decisions that do happen in there that do get referenced later, but mm-hmm. they don't matter. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, yeah, it's it's amazing that they did all that work and they've, they made it matter. Like, my some of my favorite moments are yeah just exiting the human embassy for the first time taking a right and and seeing seeing your Elcor and Volus friends yeah just just yeah in their consulate i guess you would say but it's mm-hmm. like they're not they're not on the council either so they get a little office yep and they have, and, they have to share an office and if i remember yeah. that Volus is upset <laughs> and the Elcor doesn't care cuz Elcor don't care about things they don't oh and the Elcor is so good. Elcor, great. <laughs> Love the Elcor. And are also great. They're just space yeah. prophets. Pretty much, yeah. Let me tell you about my squid religion. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's uh, it is so so good. And yes, it makes it makes everything that happened in Mass Effect Two seem that much more exciting. Like mm-hmm. Mass Effect Two can just focus purely on. Like the gameplay part of the game, focusing on more on like Mass Effect Two focuses more on the interpersonal relationships. I feel like between yes. the characters, mm-hmm. and it does a very good job with that, in my opinion. Yes, I I think 
as much as I like certain characters in Mass Effect 1, I think Mass Effect 2's party members and side characters and interpersonal relationships are all around better. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and no, I think it, it even builds on the returning characters in really good ways. Oh, totally. And it's allowed to do that because Mass Effect 1 puts in the work. Yes. And does so so successfully. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, if you're like me and Alex, you were very, very excited after Mass Effect 1. You were definitely looking forward to Mass Effect 2. Yes. Uh, which, uh, when we talk about it next time, we'll into a little bit little bit of uh just what exactly it's like to make make a world a little bit smaller and a little bit more personal before yeah. we jump into mass effect 3 where they have to learn how to stick a landing and well they try i'll say that much they try they they did try mm-hmm yeah, so if you all enjoy episodes like this, remember ftp.podbean.com to see other episodes of Falling Through Plot Holes. And of course, we're on Apple Podcast and Google Play. So with that, though, I'm going to go ahead and sign off here, everybody. And we'll see you next time. See you guys later.